G'day mate, 40 here. So some people just have other people's numbers, all right? Proverbs chapter 27 verse 17 is iron sharpens iron, so too one man sharpens another. So uh, some people think that I've got the number or that I can take the measure of people like Richard Spencer or Dennis Prager or Ben Shapiro or uh, Ken, is Kenneth Wood, or no, not Kenneth Wood, uh, Kenneth Brown, uh, Deep Left Jokov. And then I know other people can certainly take my measure <laughs> really well. Remember, I'd read uh, Mike Albo, who's the editor of Hustle Erotic Video Guide. I would, I would read some of his writings about me to my therapist, and she would like piss herself laughing because that guy just absolutely had had my number. So, iron sharpens iron. So, too, one man should sharpen another. And I don't think there's anyone better than taking down other right wing talkers intellectuals than richard spencer he's just really really good at it he's got a good post on tucker carlson so tucker came out with a two and a half minute video yesterday and it was absolutely vacuous and this is what richard says cultivated helplessness tucker carlson speaks alas tucker broke his silence some expected him to take their prisoners tucker would eviscerate the fox high raft perhaps launch into a nationalist harangue if only as an act of defiance Perhaps some hope for repentance. Everyone thought he'd give a hint of what's to come. Instead, we get platitudes fit for a middle school principal. And that's absolutely accurate. The mainstream media just don't want to talk about the things that matter. One day, common sense will set the world free. Okay, Tucker Carlson got uh, five hours a week on his Fox show, as well as Fox News specials, and he frequently didn't want to talk about things that matter. I mean, Tucker deliberately stepped away from debating. Uh, approximately five years ago so in the context of what happened this week the performance is bizarre but then perfectly fitting with tucker's personality the man who had the largest cable news platform in the country the man who had the twitter righty hanging on his every segment demands that we begin talking about important things still unnamed this sentiment is the other side of the coin of his assertion this past weekend at the heritage foundation's 50th anniversary that marshalling facts in support of an argument is no longer viable against the forces of evil we should pray instead so both Tucker's goofy praise of the brave, simple truth-teller and his quietistic call to prayer both lead in the same direction, ironically, to no real speech at all. Words are, after all, power. They inflect our thinking. They articulate human action. They generate something new. They lead us to change our lives or to do something we wouldn't otherwise have done. Tucker leaves us with a lame hope that common sense will prevail and that none of this really matters. So Tucker is notorious for peddling the great replacement theory. The idea that through immigration, self-loathing, whites are gradually being replaced demographically and culturally in their own homelands. Tucker's retelling the Democratic Party has successfully diluted the votes of native-born Americans. There's much to criticize in Great Replacement Theory, and in particular in Tucker's partisan version of it. For one, Hispanics are avidly intermarrying with whites and increasingly voting Republican. That's not really the point. The real question is, what attracts Tucker to doctrines like this? Is he secretly a white nationalist prophesying a coming middle American revolt? No, he's not secretly a white nationalist. Or does his fascination with great replacement theory derive from something else? Is it, in fact, the cultivated helplessness of the doctrine that most appealed to him? Now, I think that what what uh, Tucker finds amusing about great replacement theory is that people on the left have frequently trumpeted it as as a great thing. <laughs> that this is wonderful. But when people on the right say, no, it's not wonderful, then it's a bizarre conspiracy and myth. But when people on the left praise it, then uh, then it's just awesome right so i i agree with tucker's amusement 
When the distinctive aspects of Tucker's are presented beyond his confused golden retriever stare and maniacal cackle is that he instructs his audience how to feel about news items with lines like, this should make you enrage, and you no doubt are. Scanning the titles of segments on YouTube, Tucker, in fact, instructs his audience how to feel before the topic is even addressed. Well, John Stewart pioneered that, all right? There are a lot of people who do this because there's so much news out there and the outside world is such a big buzzing confusion that we naturally feel tempted to people who can put it into context and tell us how to feel, how to relate to what's going on in the news. That's why there are pundits who make a living. So Tucker wants you to be angry, outraged, bewildered, resentful. Sometimes angry people lash out. Hurt people hurt people, often in the stupidest, most self-defeating ways, as on January 6th. But mostly the emotions Tucker induces stultify his audience into a state of paralysis. The essence of conspiracy thinking, and at its worst, great replacement theory is a bogus conspiracy theory, is that the bad elites are all powerful, nothing can be done. The demographic transformation that Tucker foresees has, in fact, already taken place. Is it not his role, along with the likes of Ann Coulter, to warn about what has already happened, to lament the passing of the great race, which can find some redemption in voting for the doomed GOP. When given the opportunity to endorse the actual racial politics that great replacement theory implies, Tucker denounced it with vehemence and relish. This is, no doubt, the real Tucker. All right, uh, pretty funny and some good points there by Richard Spencer. Probably wondering, what does Dennis Prager have to say about Tucker Carlson? And we're, we're three days, three and a half days past Tucker's firing, and it still remains to the best of my knowledge, the number one news story in America. Prager here. Tucker Carlson has been the, the dominant issue. Fascinating. I think he had, what was it, 30 million views in the first five hours? That's sort of unprecedented, I think, uh, for one individual. Fox News has done him a big favor. I don't know what the future of Fox News is. I don't know what animated it. I, I don't know. People have speculated on so many things. I, I tend not to speculate. If I know, I know. Sometimes, if, if something is clear to me, but not been verified, then I'll say, yes, this is what I think. But I, I have no idea here. There may be a whole host of, of issues. What, what it has done uh, is, I was on Newsmax last night, and uh, I will be again on Friday. That's to, what is that, tomorrow? Yes. And uh, they're, they're increasing their views. So people are gradually moving over in terms of conservative networks to uh, a number of conservative alternatives on the internet and and sometimes cable as well there is a there is truly uh, there, there are two countries there's the New York Times country and then there is the conservative country they have nothing in common a very a very tragic fact I, I don't uh, I don't sugarcoat reality I look at human nature and I understand its proclivities and I aim to have people be better and more good, which is what better means. I said recently in a podcast debate that I aim my aim is to produce good people, not saints. Then people dismissed that. Uh, they thought it was a, a very bad comment. Our task is to try to produce saintly people. Given the amount of evil on this planet, I actually would be quite satisfied uh, with uh, the world being good. So would you, most of you. A very important question in, in, in any event. Good To be good involves being courageous. That alone is so rare. So I, I don't, I've never pushed people toward the saintly. To be honest, courageous, get married, make a family, 
pretty basic stuff. But for some, and I'm thinking in, in religious communities, that's not enough. And I understand that. Uh, but uh, for the great majority of people, there are people who can live a saintly life. But for the great majority of people, let's aim that they, they don't hurt their fellow human being, which vast numbers of people do. Oh, anyway, the first hour of my show today, uh, incidentally, uh, I will be speaking tonight in Phoenix for uh, the Patriot. Okay, let's see if he says anything more here about Tucker. Ah, I guess uh, that's it. All right, uh, we've got uh, some other thoughts lined up for you. What do we got here? All right, uh, this is uh, Jonah Goldberg. He is talking about uh, Tucker Carlson's next move. Fox News, the network saying in a statement, quote, we thank him for his service to the network as a host and prior to that as a contributor. That was it. The surprise announcement coming just a week after Fox News settled a defamation lawsuit with Dominion Voting Systems for more than three quarters of a billion dollars. That lawsuit revealed text between Carlson and staffers where he said that he hated former President Trump despite saying other things on air. Text also showing him making disparaging comments about Fox executives. Joining us now on this is CNN senior, senior media reporter Oliver Darcy and CNN political commentator Jonah Goldberg, who we should note left Fox News after being there for 12 years when Carlson said that January 6th was a false flag operation. Thank you both for being here. And, and Oliver, I think the question this morning that even Tucker may be asking himself is, why? Why now? now? Why is the big question? And that's just unclear, to be honest, at this point in time. I think it's impossible to disconnect the decision for Fox News from the big Dominion settlement last week. I mean, that was a massive settlement, $787.5 million they had to pay out to Dominion. It's, it's unclear exactly to what part of that lawsuit, I think, factored into Carlson's ultimate firing at Fox News. There are a number of factors that could have factored in, but it's unclear exactly what was his undoing as related to that lawsuit. But we should keep in mind that the Murdochs had stood by Carlson through everything. I mean, he made white nationalist remarks on Fox News. They stood by him. He made anti immigrant remarks they stood by him he promoted conspiracy theories about the covid vaccines they stood by him he promoted conspiracy theories and truthism about the january 6th attack they stood by him he so doubted by the 2020 election and they stood by him so something changed in their calculus and if perhaps it was just that the risk versus the reward calculation ha had altered and, and he was just causing them too much problems and not offering enough reward and they just decided maybe to just wipe their hands clean yeah jonah i mean as someone who didn't stand by him right you you know you've known him for 12 years you worked at you, you were contributed there to fox news i wonder what you think the final straw could have been yeah, just to be clear, I knew Tucker, I've known Tucker for 25 years. I mean, I, I knew Double him long before he went to Fox News. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, but regardless, look, I, I think Oliver's right. I think that it's still kind of opaque and murky about what, you know, there's a reason why we call the last straw the last straw, because normally straws don't break camel's backs, right? Um, but it's all the stuff prior to the straw that makes it the decisive factor. I do think that there's, um, you know, the LA Times, where I read a column, there's a, there, there, apparently it's the Abby Grossberg tapes, or the Abby Grossberg lawsuit, something about that is a big part of the decision. And also something about... Uh, the Ray Epps episode on 60 Minutes, which hmm. sort of debunked Tucker's false flag mm -hmm. operation stuff. And I, I think that one of the things that a lot of people don't understand is that Tucker's shtick, where he called January 6th this false flag thing, where he leans into all these conspiracy theories, that's actually related to the Dominion suit in a, in a sort of weird way. And so far as that whole idea of respecting the audience, if you follow that logic, where you say, well, we should tell the audience what it wants to hear, well, why go half-assed with that? Go all in, right? And that's what Tucker did, is rather than just say, oh, maybe there's something to this Dominion thing, he said, no, 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 these deplorable people who stormed the Capitol, they're actually heroes and victims and martyrs. And he, gave, he really force-fed and pandered to the audience what he thought it wanted to hear, not just this sort of a half-measure, you know, let's say Trump has got something going, maybe, maybe onto something with this Dominion stuff. He said, no, 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 let's take the worst things about Trump in January 6th and turn them into positives for us, because that's what the audience really wants to hear. And the thing about that is it's a really big audience, Oliver. I mean, he was one of the highest-rated anchors that they had. And I think that's why he went to the front page of the New York Times. 
in the Washington Post. It was your A1 in your newsletter. And so the question is, what does that look like going forward? Because obviously, I've heard from people in Trump world, they're stunned by this. He was a big, you know, any conservative, if you wanted to be a successful Republican, you had to go on his show, essentially, people felt. I think there are two questions about what's next. What's next for Fox News and what's next for the uh, Republican Party moving forward? For Fox what News. for the Republican Party, I think? Well, I, I think for the Republican Party, you had Tucker Carlson, who really shaped the modern day GOP, and he pushed it to the extremes. I mean, Tucker Carlson was not your average conservative. He made Sean Hannity look fairly moderate on a lot of positions. He was an extremist, and he whipped the Republican Party in that direction. And so without him doing that, without GOP lawmakers fearing that if they didn't say the right thing, that Tucker Carlson would go on his 8 p.m. primetime perch and lash out at them, I think that, you know, really, it, it, it doesn't, we don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I think this is going to change the GOP in some way. And I think for Fox News, they have some problems as well, potentially, if Tucker Carlson decides to go somewhere else. They were really worried after uh, the 2020 election about losing an audience to the smaller competitors like Newsmax if Tucker Carlson somehow turns up on one of those channels or does his own thing. It's not, I mean, it would not be, you know, unheard of that a significant chunk of his audience could follow him. So I think those are the two things I'm watching right now. Uh, Jonah, someone who's known Tucker for 25 years and worked at Fox for 12, <laughs> do you, I mean, I, no world in which this is the end of Tucker Carlson in the, you know, in, in, the, in the public eye on some media platform, maybe his own. Yeah, I think it's a very real possibility he goes full Joe Rogan, creates his own thing, um, then he gets to do things on his terms. Uh, he will definitely want to get the last word or at least get his version of events. He may be, he may be in need of lawyering up right now because of the Grossberg stuff. Who knows? But I, I think it's absolutely true we haven't seen the last of Tucker Carlson. I do think it's important you know, on this Republican Party question. You know, recall that Ron DeSantis, one of the first missteps he had um, was he felt compelled to fill out Tucker Carlson's uh, campaign questionnaire, and that's where he called, you know, the Ukraine stuff a border dispute. None of these candidates, no GOP people are going to feel compelled to fill out whoever replaces Tucker, his questionnaire. Yeah, that's such a good point, Donna, because it does show just the impact that he had. That what they did was they just reached out to all these candidates, asked for their position on Ukraine, and then read them live on air, basically. A lot that was didn't do it. A major, yeah. yeah, and then they later retroactively did a major moment. Yeah, so Tucker had enormous influence. I mean, Boris Johnson complained about that. I mean, it, it, it was... Uh, it's incredible how much this analysis was written makers. by Paul Kane. With Tucker Carlson's ouster, House GOP loses a key ally and agitator. The influential Fox News host had possibly more power than any other conservative to sway the House Republican conference. A day after trying to rally House Republicans to support Ukraine, Boris Johnson confessed that he met stiff resistance because the lawmakers feared one man who opposed the war. I've been amazed and horrified by how many people are frightened of a guy called Tucker Carlson, the former British prime minister said, drawing laughter from the Atlantic Council audience on February 1st. Has anybody heard of somebody called, has anybody heard of Tucker Carlson? Yes, most definitely, House Republicans have heard Carlson, loud and clear. The now ousted Fox News personality drew more than 3 million viewers a night, the most in prime time for cable news. But the most loyal, or cowed, patrons were the more than 200 members of the House Republican Conference for the past few years. Carlson's sway over those lawmakers ranged from influential to outright bizarre. Sometimes he tackled major policy issues, like his opposition to supporting Ukraine, and other times he ridiculed them over niche issues, like his defense of TikTok. Many House Republicans pined to appear on his show, while others gave him preferential treatment. In mid-February Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican, California, gave Carlson's team exclusive access to tens of thousands of hours of security footage from the January 6, 2021, attack on the Capitol. Not since the late radio host Rush Limbaugh and his ditto head soared to the top of conservative talk radio in the 1990s has one news personality held such sway on a congressional caucus. Back then, House Speaker Newt Gingrich, Republican, Georgia, would invite Limbaugh to address GOP meetings and members of the majority-making 1994 class even grand 
So, yeah, House Republicans just uh, very scared of Tucker Carlson. It's a little bit amusing. So here's an anecdote from Friedrich Hayek. Okay, he wrote The Road to Serfdom, published it in 1944, and it was a huge hit in the United States. And so he was across the Atlantic, and <laughs> the Reader's Digest summarized his book. And, <laughs> like, they... they, they <laughs> Uh, Mass Circulation Look Magazine summarized his book in a series of 18 cartoons. Then this was reissued by General Motors, making the point that National Socialist planning leads to dictatorship, secret police, and firing squad. And uh, Reader's Digest suggested that socialism is incompatible with Christianity, uh, which is an amusing claim because Friedrich Hayek, the economist and an unwavering non-believer, would never have made it. But anyway, he comes over to the United States after World War II. He's pressed into public lecturing. And he finds that he's encountering all these Americans who are incredibly enthusiastic about the book, but they've never read it. So when he lectures them about the dangers of state intervention into the economy, they respond with warm applause. It's like telling them the bigger the government, the smaller the citizen. Right? Like Dennis Prager's message. But then when Hayek would argue that governments should step in where competition cannot possibly do the job, such as in financing hydroelectric power, for example, and the government should implement a plan for competition, including unemployment insurance and a minimum wage law, he noticed that the temperature of the room went down at least 10 degrees. And so I noticed that as a live stream. And steadily since uh, 2020, 2019, 2020, I've increasingly had the fortitude to say what I think, even if the temperature in the room drops 10 degrees. Like I've often done live streams here and every single person in the chat is is passionately disagreeing with what i have to say but uh it's it's a dilemma do you want to do you want to just uh say right do you want to just say what you believe to be true or do you want to say right what uh, the audience wants to hear so here's uh, james o'keefe James O'Keefe, Project Veritas. Do you know what this is? This is footage of the FBI breaking down doors. Why were you silent about that? How much did they pay you to become a patsy for the administrative state, Oliver? How much did they pay you to compromise your sense of ethics, Oliver? I have messages from you from 2011, Oliver, when you worked for ExposingLeftist.com. Oliver Darcy, he's a recent college grad and co-founder of ExposingLeftists.com. Basically what we did was we knew and we do know that a lot of college students support the redistribution of wealth. You think by being silent you can maintain some type of morals. Are you going to call the cops on me? You reported it was harassment for me to quote the New York Times. With me and two other colleagues who were there, who were outside. Can't engage, can't say a word. Imagine how bad it must be when there's nothing you can say that won't make it worse. Shaking his head, looking at cops, looking at security when asked questions. You see the 4.0 students in there. Um, they do not want to give any of it up. And What a big man you are, Oliver Darcy. Stay tuned for more. Oh, that wasn't very nice. Throw us some red meat, or at least an organ capsule. Luke Ford against the chat hordes. <laughs> but Friedrich Hyatt, all right, he comes to America. This is such a classical American thing. Finds very enthusiastic crowds, uh, very few of whom have actually read his book, 
and he finds he gets this warm reception when he tells them what they want to hear but then the temperature in the room just drops when he informs them about some basic realities that they don't want to hear i remember i took classes at ucla under famed economist russell roberts of econ talk and he would uh, point out that there is you know a very rational and strong argument for certain public goods and he would provide models for it so yeah there's there are arguments for the free market but there are also some strong arguments against uh you know, just uh, depending on the free market for everything yeah going against the chat is absolutely necessary if you want to maintain any uh integrity all right uh great space on april 24th the day that tucker was uh fired from eric garland hosted by eric garland and uh, chuck johnson does a lot of the speaking all right not endorsing everything said on this space but overall i found it interesting i listened to all three hours and 50 minutes of it any number of lawyers it was just you know the 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 judge you understand that there was a you know the dominion v fox suit was going to be a jury trial and the judge stepped in and wouldn't let it go to a jury on the merits of the case itself because it was so overwhelming. He's like, this is a freaking waste of time. Like, it's just, just, you know, plainly obvious on the face of everything that we see so far that, that, that Fox caused damage in a very, you know, difficult legal standard. It was like quite impressive how shitty they are. Uh, so we were, they were just going to talk about the, how malicious they were. And, you know, Fox couldn't even stand that. And they paid out damn near a billion dollars. I mean, I'd say if you have any sort of claim against Fox News and you'd love them to go away, sue them today. Sue them. <laughs> yeah, I think even if your case isn't even all that great, if you're like in the queue and the company goes bankrupt, you'll probably get some money out of it. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. some, I mean, somebody's got it. There's got to be some attorney with a novel legal theory about, you know, remember that movie like, you know. How, how like how Fox stole my dad or whatever. Somebody's got to have like a, uh, you know, it's some claim that, uh, you know, that Fox News is responsible for stealing, you know, the, the companionship, uh, you know, much like a wrongful death suit, if you will, uh, that, you know, that Fox was, you know, part of ruining countless family relationships. And, you know, the I will tell you, like, I never thought it would get my father and it got my father you know, I know a lot of people in this space have the same sort of reaction. And I told my dad, like, I was like, dad, I love you very much. But if you bring up another like talking point from Tucker Carlson, like we're just. And, you know, I don't buy this because we weren't born yesterday. Humans did not evolve to be gullible. So Fox News or Luke Ford or Richard Spencer doesn't take you anywhere that you don't want to go. Wait, wait, isn't that an Eagle song? Never takes you anywhere you don't want to go that's got to be an eagle song i mean i had a rabbi i said every profound philosophical oh peaceful easy feeling yeah i had a reform rabbi mordechai finley he said that uh every profound thought has been expressed in a pop song yeah i found out a long time ago what a woman or what fox news or luke ford can do to your soul oh but she he it can't take you anywhere you don't already know how to go right that's why i've got a peaceful easy feeling and i know you won't let me down because i'm already standing on the ground and wherever you take this show all right that's on you all right i don't take responsibility if if this show influences you 
I, I, I only take a minimum amount of responsibility because all this show can do is take you where you want to go. Now, you're probably crying out, look, what did Dennis Prager say on Monday about Tucker Carlson? Left Fox News abruptly, to, to the best of our knowledge, abruptly. He was on on Friday night, and now he has announced that he is gone. So one tweet of someone who follows the news is, my sources are telling me Tucker was all set to go live tonight. He probably had plans to talk about the lawsuit, that is the Dominion lawsuit, and clear his name. Producers were prepping guests and slots of Monday's show. Corporate nixed the idea, and Tucker got up and quit. I have no idea if that is accurate. I'm not a fan of speculating, but it's inevitable in this case. The most popular man in the news industry on video, on television, on Internet. So it's a big deal. I assume we'll find out one day, maybe maybe today, maybe tomorrow. Hmm. Well, it's three days now. We still haven't found out. Be, well, I'll tell you this. Uh, it will be very interesting on many levels where he goes. He can single-handedly give massive life to another, not another network necessarily, though obviously that's true, but to something like Substack or any of the Internet sites where, where voices that have been suppressed. He could get a I'm not saying he was, but where voices that have been suppressed have been. Wherever he goes will be a massive boost to that place. So that obviously will be interesting. So there, uh, welcome to the show, my friends. I'm Dennis Prager, and as I reported, Tucker Carlson has left, quite abruptly, has left Fox News, and Don Lemon, not quite uh, the the powerhouse that Tucker Carlson is, he has been let go, go of let go by CNN. It was an understatement when I said he wasn't quite the powerhouse. I don't know. I don't know what. Yeah, I tended it. I tended it to be an understatement. Understatements are very powerful. It, uh, it was sad to me because I actually uh, had a good relationship with him prior to the Trump Don era. The Trump era is a perfect test. I asked Jordan Peterson once, do you know somebody, can you say you know someone well if they haven't been tested? And he immediately said no. That has really stayed with me. Okay, so um, in light of the subject of talk radio and Tucker Carlson being outed or leaving at Fox, um, Glenn Beck just broadcasted a text line that we should all text to to sign a petition to keep AM radios on new car production. Yeah, so a lot of new cars have been bothering to install AM radio. I find that funny, like trying to hold back the tides. Uh, progress yeah good luck good luck on uh trying to stop all that all right this is uh eric garland chuck Johnson. i'm just not going to chat anymore because it means that like somebody gets gone up a miss in your brain it was like i'm i'm more comfortable with you just watching like you know the worst trashiest tv than i am comfortable with you watching fox and i think some- this is a totalitarian instinct uh, on the part of uh Chuck Johnson here. He wants to he wants to imprison people like Tucker Carlson for misinformation. I mean, I, I find that just absurd. Think about like as people get older, they get comforted by the TV in a lot of ways, you know. And and I think that that is, you know, it gets harder to do things as you're seventy or eighty years old as some of our parents are, and uh, it's distressing, you know. But I think it's something you need to sort of talk about. But I do think there is a form of pollution argument you could make for sure about Fox and. About a lot of cable television, for that matter. I think a lot of it's been bad for the republic. Well, and, and, you know, 
what this did, and this puts it squarely in the hostile intelligence operation category, is it, it introduced a style of, of rhetoric and behavior that you weren't just right compared compared to your family members who didn't agree with you. You were aggressively, violently correct. And thus, any way you acted towards those people around you, whether they were neighbors, people you shared this country. Okay, and again, I have really big uh, exceptions to these points. All right, what has driven division is real-life conflicts of interest between real people in real situations. As America has become more diverse, we have less in common, so it's become harder for us to get along. It is talk radio and cable TV that is embodying this this uh growing distrust of your, your fellow american this uh growing conflict and partisanship it's not talk radio and fox news that has created this right they're just responding to facts on the ground with even your own family members if they didn't agree with whatever these jabonis were saying this week you had the right to scream at them or you know whether it was over text message or on facebook which of course facebook was you know was equally part of this as with with fox news and all these other sources of psychologically you know analyzing people figuring out where they had you know they would be attracted to something or revulsed by something and and aiming that even more intensely and you know, convincing people like, hey, you got to go, you know, click dislike on this. You got to swear at these people. Uh, you know, that was you know intentional. Uh, you know, at least from Cambridge Analytica and Russian intelligence services. And I, I got to imagine there there were a lot of people at Fox and other corporations that engaged in this and, and just intentionally poisoned relationships. I think if somebody has uh, you know a detailed enough story and enough forensic data and, and an attorney willing to try a, a novel legal theory, that uh, you know there, there's probably some form of these guys support suing Fox News over you know, the destruction of, of family ties. I mean, that's just insane levels of analysis. So I appreciate some of the thoughtful things that these guys say, but uh, much of it is just absolutely bonkers, absolutely insane. Interesting article in The Atlantic. America is in its insecure attachment era. So there are four major forms of attachment. There's secure attachment where you basically... Uh, regard the main people in your life as trustworthy, you regard yourself as trustworthy, that's about 50% to two-thirds of the population. Then there is anxious attachment, which I've struggled with much of my life, and that's where you have a great deal of anxiety, both about yourself and the trustworthiness of other people. Then there is avoidant or dismissive attachment, where you dismiss the importance of having friends and connections. And then there's disorganized attachment, where you're you know, all over the place. But... Uh, we have had a steady trend in America since the 1960s towards less secure attachment and less social cohesion and less social trust. And I primarily blame civil rights. Civil rights reduce the ability to have freedom of association, reduce your ability to rent to whom you want, to congregate with whom you want, to form clubs with whom you want, to employ who you want. As a result, because we're more diverse, right? we've become increasingly more diverse, and we have an extensive civil rights litigation complex, it makes it more difficult to have normal human relationships. I mean, this Abby Grossberg was like recording Tucker Carlson's uh, employees, you know, looking for a basis to sue them for anti-Semitism or just to, to damage them. If, if you think that uh, someone you're working with is tape recording you, that's just going to destroy social cohesion and social trust. So fewer and fewer people are comfortable, you know, relating to others. Right? And attachment trends, they're not a condition. They're basically a reflection of how you view the world. And in our increasingly diverse society with its civil rights, industrial complex, legal complex, with, with lawfare, P 
people increasingly look around and think people are not reliable. Prior to the 1960s, people looked around and generally speaking, they thought their fellow American citizens were reliable. So attachment trends signify something significant. Uh, distrust in your fellow citizens, also distrust in your colleagues, in your neighbors, even your friends, your partners, your parents. It's harder to maintain a marriage, right? With uh, all the incentives, for example, for wives to divorce their husbands and then just you know, take them to the cleaners. So people are feeling increasingly precarious, right? Diversity makes people feel more precarious. Not all diversity. There are certain types of diversity that don't drive a tremendous feeling of precariousness, such as in Sydney, Australia, right? Tremendous diversity, but very small levels of crime. And yes, Sydney still has the lowest levels of social trust and social cohesion of any part of Australia, but still compared to my experience of of you know, big city America, Sydney has far more social trust and social cohesion. So far fewer people proportionally feel precarious in Australia and in Sydney or in Melbourne or Brisbane than in Los Angeles or San Francisco or New York. So your attachment state, right? It's not so much a style, all right? It's not so much a static personality trait, really. It's an evaluation of how you see the broader world, right? So... Uh, feeling precarious about your finances, feeling that you don't have much in common with your fellow citizens. It doesn't just destroy or diminish your social trust and social cohesion with strangers. It then has a contaminating effect on your relationship with your community, your friends, your family, and, and your spouse. It just makes everything worse. People feel more under pressure, right? They feel more insecure. They, they see the world outside as more dangerous. And so they are incentivized to have less face-to-face -face interaction to kind of curl up like a turtle and uh, just stay behind locked doors and watch TV. When I got off the plane from L.A. to Sydney, I couldn't wait to just get out and explore Sydney. I was thrilled to be on the bus, to be around my fellow Aussies. I just loved it. I went to the beach. I was just out and about. As soon as I got off the plane from LAX to Sydney, I felt safe. I felt safe the entire three months. I was in Australia. Never once felt threatened or endangered. And so I couldn't wait to start interacting with people. I get off the plane from Sydney to LAX, get off the plane at LAX, and I just immediately felt myself pulling within myself, immediately start feeling on guard, getting on the bus from, from LAX, not feeling a whole lot in common with my fellow bus riders, feeling quite wary of some people on the bus, not wanting to interact with, with strangers, and couldn't wait to get home and lock the door. And then live stream, <laughs> do whatever I want, where I could have interaction on my terms. But when I was in Australia, I was very eager to have interaction with strangers. Just walking down the street, walking, you know, along the sand, going for a swim. All right, it was uh, a great feeling of ease. Get into LAX, and soon my head's on a swivel, you know, looking looking for danger. So. America is in its insecure attachment phase, and I primarily blame the civil rights industrial complex. I want to play a little bit more here from Eric Garland. Chuck like, are connected with this intelligence agency or that intelligence agency, or like you know, you just there's a lot of weird stuff like that. You win some sort of academic prize, and people show up and they're like, "Hey, would you like this bicycle?" <laughs> you know, or whatever. And yeah. people think I'm lying about that stuff, or they think I like it's too crazy. But but I mean, you know, Terry and I. Okay, that's uh, thoughtful. Oh man, let me let me queue up. 
a targeted person that no one ever writes a thing about, but I have all of the emails. I have emails from the principals of the Carlisle Group, Energy Group, Shomik, Frank White. I have all. So this space seems to attract some high achievers, all right? It's not just a bunch of idiots and nutters. All that. Yeah, I think people 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 should take it a lot more seriously. I mean, for those who don't know, I mean, you were in a romantic, you know, complicated relationship with Steve Jurvetson, who's on the board of SpaceX. And if you want to go into that, we can, or we can maybe save it for a separate space. But uh, but I think people, you know, I I've seen a lot of the weird intelligence operations that have been run at you, Gary, and they freak yeah. me out. Um, and I think there's something. At what cost, though, did you enjoy high social trust and cohesion and a feeling at, of ease and no sense of danger in Australia? What vibrancy were you deprived of? Well, I was deprived of the vibrancy about around being around criminally inclined people, right? That was the vibrancy. I got all the other vibrancies. I mean, I was vibrating and vibrant, right? Sydney, very diverse, but uh, it seemed to miss the diversity of those groups who commit astronomical rates of violent crime. I'm trying to put my finger on it. Which, which groups of these? I can't quite remember, but to a lot of it. And I, I know that there's there's a lot of journalistic inquiry going on on Steve Jurvetson. And, you know, Jurvetson's, I mean, as, we, as we've talked about before, I mean, he's on the board of SpaceX and he's like running around doing all kinds of drugs and God knows what else. So it's, it's a very, he's a very strange character to put him out. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I just like, I have this account now because I'm tired of the other one because, and no offense, I am a Democrat woman, but like, I can't stand the shrieking anymore of people screaming at me about stupid stuff that they don't know what they're talking about. And like, I've lived 10 years of this. People don't have any idea to what degree and like, and what I've done to try to like help this situation and and honestly it's the democratic party that is the bleeping worst in it and it's because they're compromised too but all they want to talk about is is the gop side they're both compromised that's how this happens it, it's like you can't tangle with one party like we i, I, I agree with you though, though i do think the more pressing threat in the in the immediate term is probably the casino magnates and the real estate people around trump i think they're probably a bigger threat but i do think that we're going to need to go there on the tech oligarchs i mean you know we've talked a little bit about some of them over the years uh and i think we're going to need to talk more about them as time goes on i think a lot of them will I think the way it's going to go down is I think like the U.S. deep state swept the Hollywood world by getting rid of Harvey Weinstein. I think yep. right, right now they're sweeping the Fox News world right by getting rid of Tucker and, and Murdoch. And I think the next step will be all the Silicon Valley people. And I think yep. that that'll start up maybe like midpoint next year as Elon Musk's empire really collapses. And, and I'll give my prediction of like what to keep an eye on. Like if I have to guess where this is going to go. My educated, well-informed opinion is that I think we will need to keep an eye on the Balkans and the oil deals around um, not just McGonagall, but the people before him that are running in the Burning Man crowd that Steve Jurvetson pals around with at Burning Man that include Wes Clark Sr. And I know there's some Midas Touch related people on this line right now, but whatever. You know, they do this whole, you know, Wes Clark Jr. show and then troll me personally while they're doing the show exposing sexual blackmail against, you know, potential POTUS candidates. Well, guess what? Wes Clark Sr.'s father was running around Burning Man with Steve Jurvetson and hanging with Newt Greenwich doing the dirty biodiesel deal. Yeah, I think you're, I mean, look, I think you're, you, this may be beyond the scope of the Tucker Carlson space, but I do think you're, look, there's a lot of weird stuff that goes on at Burning Man. There's a lot of weird intelligence agencies that show up there. And it makes sense why they would, right? Because, like, it's a place where a whole bunch of rich people, like, hang out in the desert and doing drugs and fucking each other. Like, what's not to like if you're a hostile intelligence agency? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not, it's no, it's no, like, it doesn't take, you know, and any of the reporters out there saying, like, I can't understand, I can't follow. Like, let me, let me break it down really quick in, in 15 seconds, and I'll let you guys get back to your, you know, topic. When, when someone speaks out about sexual blackmail operations out of Silicon Valley that affect presidential candidates, and those people in the same group are clustered around the same Balkan oil deals that McGonagall was, and those very same people are clustered around West Clark Sr. I mean, and and, and, and and those people, those very same people are clustered around 
Masha Jakova, whose money funnel compromised McGonagall, it's going to all come back. That's that's my little. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, like, I think some of these things may be too intelligence related. So the U.S. intelligence world will want to, like, cover things up. And basically, like, from the U.S. intelligence perspective, they want to take and turn assets, not put stakes through their hearts. Right. So I think that there's going to be a lot of, like, weird stuff that's not readily explainable. But, like, yeah, I mean, look, we're in a world. I mean, Steve Jurvetson was an early backer of Theranos. He was a backer of Planet Labs, which has, like, a weird Iranian guy, lots of Chinese money in that deal. He was a backer of D Wave, which has connections with the Russians, SpaceX, and yeah. Tesla. And, like, you know, his now ex-wife was a huge backer. I think she was like involved with Baidu or like one of those Chinese networks. And, yep. you know, there's a lot of these tech guys um, who, uh, you know, who are compromised, who are funnels of foreign cash into our system. And, yep. uh, you know, we've talked about Teal before and the weird stuff with him. I've written about a lot of this stuff on my Substack. People can just search it if they're curious. But I think getting back to the Tucker question, I think, you know, like people were talking about Tucker as a, as a presidential candidate not too long ago. Right. There'd been like these large stories about him. Where? <laughs> I mean, all over the place. Uh if you Google like Tucker Carlson president, you'll see a lot of this raw stuff. Sexiness? Come on now. All right, so you can't really say Tucker without mentioning Dancing with the Stars as an absolute <laughs> Russian um, Armenian op. <laughs> yeah, that was really something, wasn't it? Like basically, like when you understand that a lot of the reality TV star stuff is like deeply connected in weird ways. But yeah, there was this piece uh, Tucker Carlson for president that ran in the Spectator. There's, there's if you go and you just search Tucker Carlson for president, um, the Guardian, you know, has a piece where they talk about uh, he could be a good president. Is Tucker Carlson the next Donald Trump? So. I mean, I, you know, we're, we're in a world in which we elected a reality TV star president. So apparently everyone thinks they can be president. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that, that that's where they got Zelensky from. He was on Dancing with the Stars, too. He won in Ukraine. Uh, that's right. Yeah, he was on their equivalent of Dancing with the Stars. Yep. And he, yeah, course, yep, yep, yep. So, yeah, no, I think it's, it's very true. Um, I wonder, you know, but how was his Latin versus his smooth? Was he a 10 dancer? <laughs> I would say he's quite a good dancer. Zelensky is quite a good dancer. Like I was looking at some of the videos earlier and it's just like, this is the, the fate of the of Europe rests upon me. <laughs> but, yeah. Or, yeah. you know, we can ask Katrina Smirnoff, who is friends with the Maxwell's attorney. And we'll ask them how, how good were they? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's also the case, you know, we, we've talked about this before about like these grooming networks, how they identify promising young people. You know, you were a ballerina. I was sort of like in the newspapers a lot as a kind of like wunderkind. And it is interesting. Like they get like weird people start popping up. Like when you get spotted and assessed, like, you know, I had various people like buy me computers when I was a kid who like I later learned like are connected with this intelligence agency or that intelligence agency. Or like, you know, you just there's a lot of weird stuff like that. You win some sort of academic prize and people show up and they're like, hey, would you like this bicycle <laughs> you know, or whatever? And yeah. people think I'm lying about that stuff or they think I like that's too crazy. But but I mean, you know, Carrie and I've had similar experiences. I know Eric's had experiences that are not dissimilar from this. Um, and, yeah, and I don't, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just saying, I don't think people realize like how surreal it is and how you just can't write how bizarre and weird everything is, you know? Like, it's absolutely true. And so I, I joke about the Dancing with Stars, but it's only because I was I was going to be pushed to be on Dancing with the Stars during the misconduct situation in this whole mess, you know, and Buzz Aldrin and all that. And the wonderful thing about the internet and OSINT and leaving these digital legacies is, like, 10 years later, I can look back and be like, oh, you know, um, Elaine Maxwell's attorney had a spacesuit from the Buzz Aldrin Axe commercial in her bed, and she was acting like she was smoking a cigarette the same month I was targeted. You know, like, you can go back and see, like, I'm not crazy. These people have a very, Yeah, I mean, I tell know, people this, operation. you know, like, I was in Silicon Valley, like, doing deals, and Masha Dracova called me, wanted to meet me, and I was like, sure, <laughs> I'll go meet her, like, whatever. And the first thing she asked me is she's like, hey, do you think I'll get in trouble for my friendship with Jeffrey Epstein? This was, like, <laughs> week one of the Jeffrey Epstein scandal. And I just kind of, like, looked at her. We were in a coffee shop, and I just, like, looked at her, and I looked back at her, and I was like, is this real? Like, am I, you know? Um, <laughs> And she, of course, was the publicist for many years for, uh, for you know, Jeffrey Epstein. And she's a major investor in WorldCoin, which is backed by Sam Altman of OpenAI. So, yeah, there's this network oh, yes. of these people. She was also the, the publicist with Tim Draper's down-low investment partner, Frank Creer, who is, a, is, I believe, in my opinion, is a, a sexual blackmailer. She's also working with him on, guess what? The Russian Federation quantum computer. Yeah. No, I mean, look, if you go and you do the real research on these people, you'll see this stuff. But let's get back to Tucker and to Fox. Um, always okay. good to have you, Carrie. Uh, 
the sort of uh, yeah, I think I think that that's that's sort of useful in, in different ways. Because um, I think I think we should understand that they're both parties that are involved in this. Many commanding heights parts of the society are are involved in this. I don't know. Do, is there anything you think, Eric, that people should know about this? I know we're coming up on uh, on a few hours now, um, or maybe Naga or John or or, or Dana or, or Tom or what have you. I mean, should we should we? Is there other things we should kind of include? Um, I mean, are we unfair and going there on the mental health issues stuff of the family, you know, what or the AA stuff and Tucker's past and how he could have been assessed? I mean, how should we think about this going forward? Everything is deeply personal there, right? And that's kind of difficult to separate personal and reality. Because if you go look at, uh, I hate to take up the Punic Wars here on a modern day environment, but if you look like at the Punic Wars, a lot of those were family relationships. And after the Punic Wars, really, Gaius, I forget the two Gallic brothers, the guy, those two brothers, it's a multi generational effect. And I, I don't think it's unfair to go there, but at the same token, we got to be a little bit careful and sensitive to, I mean, it's not fair to, I'm glad you actually spoke up about AA and talk about, Hey, we. Okay. This is, uh, Eric Garland. So geopolitical analyst says his Twitter bio advisor to governments, corporations, 20 plus year host of game theory today. And his guest is independent journalist, Chuck Johnson, uh, turned Silicon Valley investor. So this we, is, we really shouldn't be bashing somebody for getting help. Right. Because we do want them in a better mental state so they can make better judgments. Yes. So that was uh, some guy named Naga. Although oftentimes you find that people who get sober, they trade one addiction for the other. Right. And, it, you know, that's, that's very true. Yeah. Go ahead, Tom. Yeah, I was just going to say that, you know, listening to uh, several of Tucker's interviews over the year, well, probably in the last uh, couple of years, one thing he always talks about, because uh, people will ask him, well, how do you stay focused or whatever? And he says, well, I don't have like any social media. I met uh, his cabin in Maine all the time, no television. And so he seems like kind of isolated off by himself quite a bit. And I don't know if that has anything to do with, uh, you know, his current state uh, or anything else. But it's like maybe he's just on his phone all day texting people and then sitting out in the woods, which uh, for me, I think that'd be great. That'd be a great life to live. But, you know, that's uh, he's in a total, you know, totally different situation. And uh, I don't know what kind of context that adds to adds to that, but. That is something I recognize from several, you know, watching several of his interviews over the years, uh, specifically the last two or three. Does anyone have any thoughts on the looming lawsuit with A.B. Grossberg, like and what was said there? Um, does anyone want to take a stab at that? I know that there's like kind of like a culture of like sexual harassment and anti-Semitism, you know, around Tucker. I, I don't know. Does anyone have any? By the way, I, I kind of believe it just to be to be blunt about it. Uh, you know, having been around some of Tucker's guys, they, they can be a little uh, it could be a little old boys clubbish. You know, that's certainly something I discovered at uh, Daily so that's uh, Chuck Johnson speaking. He used to work for Tucker Carlson at the Daily Caller. He also used to work at the Wall Street Journal and at the Weekly Standard. The Daily Caller. It was kind of like, I mean, there was like a keg there. They would like drink. They would, it was uh, very much not totally uh, up on the, on the PC side of things. Let's just put it that way. Like when we're, it... when we're in an environment in which I'm one of the more politically correct people, like that's a tell that something is deeply fucked up. You know, like that, which <laughs> <laughs> is my experience of the Tucker world. Um, so anyway, yeah, go ahead, Tom. No, I was going to say exactly that, that there were several uh, writers or, you know, uh, journalists that worked there and uh, they'd have to leave because they were <laughs> they got too edgy. Right. And uh, and then they kind of have to apologize and be like, oh, gee, we didn't know. Except so, yeah, a bunch of uh, Daily Caller, like three or four writers had to leave because they'd get outed as white nationalists. And then I also remember there was uh, that lawsuit that came from I can't remember her name, but she was like a very uh, far left liberal type environmentalist type of uh, gal who would come on uh, at Tucker's show back when he would still have like guests with a you know different set of opinions, which kind of stopped after like 2019, I think. But yeah, he had this like liberal woman who would go on. Yeah, there. liberal Sherpa. Yeah, that's what millennial whatever he would have her on yeah. and make fun of her, and then she yeah. accused him of some kind of like sexual impropriety. And I don't remember what exactly happened with the lawsuit. If somebody wants I to, I got dismissed. Uh, like I don't think I'm not sure anything uh, came of it. Yeah, interesting. 
Um, I, so the Daily Beast, you know, we talked about the Daily Beast and Barry Diller and his connections with the Chinese before uh, in these spaces. But the, the Daily Beast has a story that I think is actually worth paying attention to, which is uh, the inside story of Tucker Carlson and Don Lemon's Monday Media Massacre. It's quite a mouthful. Um, and the story is uh, is interesting because it sort of tries to paint Tucker as kind of a misogynist. Um, and this is what loomed large in his termination. People familiar with the matter told Confider was how during his deposition with Dominion lawyers, when he asked if this, quote, wasn't the only time you referred to Sidney Powell as a cunt, end quote, the Fox News star re re responded, you know, I can't know. I just want to apologize preemptively. I mean, you're trying to embarrass me. You're definitely succeeding as I'm embarrassed. This is pretty self-aware, I guess. Tuck Carlson being nailed in court documents for his repeated use of the overtly misogynist C-word was a key factor in his demise, as Fox News had, quote, had rid itself of Roger Ailes and Bill O'Reilly after years of sexual harassment complaints. It could not have its biggest stars under, biggest star undermining any supposed progress. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that that's, what can I say about that? I mean, it speaks for itself. Um, do we want to go into Brian Friedman more and sort of his connections with Michael Jackson and all the weird lawsuits, or do we do we exhaust that as well? No, I think we, you know, how Tucker and, and Don Lemon would have the same attorney on the same day, that that, that needs a little explication. Yeah. It's very weird. It's very weird. Does anyone an attorney in here or, like, has watched a lot of courtroom TV? I'll accept either outcome. Um, we'll bring you on up. But, uh, but, yeah, I mean, I am curious what people think about that. I mean, this is a strange situation, I think, where they're bringing – bringing Brian Friedman out as like their attorney to negotiate contracts. I don't know. It's, it's pretty surprising to me, to be honest. How did they hire them at the same time? I mean, they both got fired today. Like, how did they get him at the same time? Can we talk about target letters? Yeah, let's go. Let's talk. Let's go there on the target letter. I'll, I'll bring up some of the Brian Friedman stuff, but go ahead, John, talk about that. Cause, cause you pointed this out by looking at the Don Lemon statement. Uh, well, it, it's, it's interesting is... because the, the thought of a target letter having gone out had been planted in my mind. I forget where it, where I had seen it on Twitter earlier in the day, but I read Don Lemon's statement as someone, if I had just received a target letter from the department of justice telling me that, I, you know, that I was the, the target of a criminal investigation and that it would be wise of me to, you know, obtain counsel, I'd probably be shitting my pants and like looking to my mobile device to go vent that fax to the rest of the world. So the Brian Friedman, all right, the attorney they hired, he paid out $120,000 after being accused of participating in a gang rape in high school. And so he paid out $120,000 on that. And so I just think it's interesting that you know, the Dominion lawsuit settled last week rather suddenly after jury selection, after we were just about to go into introductory state or, or, you know, I believe court proceedings had already begun. And then all of a sudden, whoops, you know, settlement. It's I, I don't know. I I posed this hypothetical question earlier today, whether certain journalists of interest to the federal government for connections to foreign whatevers have legal surveillance on them. Uh, of, of a, you know, of a type where the, well, the outcome of the Dominion lawsuit basically got them on record in ways that now the federal government can act. I don't know. It's a curious hypothesis. Yeah, I think there's not, it's not wrong. Like, I will tell you, like, I, I talked to Sean Hannity about how he was, you know, being wiretapped by the FBI over his connections to various Israelis. So I don't. Okay, so that's <clears throat> Chuck Johnson. So he'll talk about, I talked to Sean Hannity. I talked to Roger Ailes. I talked to Tucker Carlson. He's not making that up. He really has been incredibly connected, and he still is. I don't think that that is a strange thing by any means, um, and maybe something that we see over time. Yeah, that's a good point. And I just want to point out, Eric, uh, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm sure you have a, a reason for it. Uh, this is just the last thing I'll throw in. But Go ahead, John. Uh, it, yeah, so, Eric, you posted a screenshot about you know the number of Google searches today for target letters, and I don't think that's necessarily 100% in response to you having tweeted about it. I wonder if maybe there's some organic interest from folks that may have been on the receiving end of said target letters. Another curious thought. So I'll leave it there. Do we think, do we think that, like, I mean, do we think that Don Lemon is, like, my understanding is he's always been up to, like, weird sex stuff. 
Um, like, is there more to it than that? Or what is our sense? I, I confess, I don't really pay any attention to non-Fox stuff simply because like the relatives I have are interested in Fox and all the relatives I have that were interested in MSNBC or CNN are dead or, uh, <laughs> or going blind. Um, so I, I don't, uh, I just don't really follow the, the CNN world all that much. Um, and then there was that curious thing about the NBC guy who was like having the affair with the subordinate. Um, I don't know. Do, do we have anything we want to go there on or what's our, uh, what's our sense of things? Do we know what's up there or is it just all speculation? By all means, feel free to speculate, but I, I don't know what the what the real story is there. It's, it's curious indeed. I mean, my theory of the case, for what it's worth, is that uh, my theory of the case is that basically the government is, is purging all of these publications at once or all these properties at once and trying to appear less biased as a result. That would be kind of my theory of the case. So, Wow. The, the government is behind all this. The government is trying to purge. Uh, I It doesn't quite make sense to me. Which, which is a great strategy, I think. Yeah, because I think it, it, it eliminates people. You, know, you can't really claim if the FBI is moving against all of these things at once, you can't claim that it's politically biased or politically motivated. Right. Because like if you're busting up Don Lemon, Don Lemon or whatever, and you're busting up the NBC guy and at the same time you're doing this and at the same time you're busting that network, it, it actually gives you the smack of firm governments across the whole sector, which suggests that it's a sector wide problem of intelligence, you know, foreign intelligence co-opting people. Um, and you remember that guy a while ago who's the producer? I want to say like Chris Cuomo's producer, something like that, who was involved in all this like sexual shit, like with children. Oh. Yeah, that, I was going to say that puts it mildly. Yeah, he was he was prosecuted by the District of Vermont U.S. Attorney's Office for like offering to uh, sexually torture women and children. Um, and as one does, know, I mean, it's pretty fucked up. Yeah. So um, you know, and the Cuomo's are, I believe, are connected at least uh, in some manner to the the Nexium cult, and and we have yet to hear much of that story, and we may never about the real story, not just the Keith Rainier, uh, you know, the surface stuff, which is terrible enough as it is, but the I think the reality of that is even. Yeah, I've, I've written about meeting him and talking to him at least on the phone. And uh, the Nexium stuff is like it's pretty real and pretty pretty disturbing. There's, uh, there's like some important Nexium LDS connections, are there not? There are indeed, and I think uh, you know there's the Mexico side of it as well. But I know we have is it Stephanie? Uh, I don't. Yeah, welcome Stephanie. I know we brought. You. Hey, thank you. No, I appreciate it. It's interesting. I was a um, I am a former Republican political consultant, and I did races on every level of government, and I'm no longer. Um, my, my condolences. Yeah, thank you. I'll take them. By the way, <laughs> um, can you speak? Okay, so they're, they're getting fairly accomplished, impressive people on this Twitter space. Stephanie McGann is a real person. Can you speak to which races you were involved in or no? Um, I did some governor's races in California. Um, I have a great Jack Kemp story for you. Um, I was on Schwarzenegger's um, governor's race, um, Pete Wilson, way back in the day. Um, I have a lot of stories. But I think my, my point of joining this conversation, and thank you for allowing me to speak, is you know, I kind of want to scream out, support local journalism, and get involved in local races. That you know, we're, I mean, human beings, we're, we're kind of we're kind of fundamentally assholes if provided the right environment. And I think that, you know, with local government, it's very hard to operate often in the darkness because you're as close as, as to your constituency as you ever could be. Same with local journalism. And the farther... That's a good point. Like, human beings are basically a-holes unless they're put in the right environment. There's, that's pretty good. The way you get from that, it, there is a lessening of accountability. And at the end of the day... I hate to go back to Plato, but, you know, the price of apathy is to be ruled by, right? And, and, and I think it's just it's incredibly complex, time-consuming, and requires some level of expertise, like Charles, in your case, of connecting the multitude of dots that are required to get up to just being able to be a presidential candidate, at least if you're a serious contender. Don't uh, blogs call each other the C-word all the time down under? Yes, and uh, bastard is like a compliment. It's like a nice thing to say. So Australians tend to be a little more guilt-free and... Uh, wide open with the profanity. So the idea that Tucker Carlson is in trouble for using the C word in private text messages just makes, it's just sad, pathetic. I, I 
why would anyone care? I, I don't see it as a you know great moral blunder or failing on Tucker's part to, to use the C word privately. What's the big deal? Both parties suffer from this. We have one particular party who's moving towards um, a sort of cult behavior and pretty loud and proud about it. But I just, at the end of the day, democracy is always fragile just by nature of construction. It just is. And so the weak spots and the holes that we have in that democracy are fairly easy to infiltrate. And when you have a general public who does not understand this because it is complex and they are far away from those government structures and political structures, it's very difficult to know who to believe or what to do, which allows for great opportunity for all sorts of conspiracy theories, some which sadly wind up being true. And so I hope that in this time, you know, when I look back on the history of the United States, moving from agriculture to manufacturing, manufacturing to technology, and now we're in this rapid expansion of technology to intelligence, um, we need to catch up. And I'm not sure many of our systems are compatible with what is needed now in today's world, whether that's jobs, politics, elections, healthcare, education. Um, I think it's going to be a really rough few years. And I think we're, uh, I hope we're going to figure it out, but I think it's going to be rough. So anyway, I just, yeah, I appreciate I don't, I don't, the space. I don't disagree with what you're saying. And, and I would say like, um, I think we've had other challenges. I mean, we've literally had civil wars. Like we've had lots of problems in this country, you know, and I think that we, uh, you know, so long as we have people of good faith trying to solve these issues, I think we ultimately can get, can solve them. Um, I'm curious, like, what did you, what, what were some of the craziest things you saw as a Republican consultant? Because I will tell you, like, I've, been, I've dabbled a little bit in the politics world and it is way crazier than I think most people are comfortable with, particularly. Okay, this is uh, Chuck Johnson speaking here. I remember when I visited the state capital of California in Sacramento, the secretaries and the just the feeling of, of lust and, you know, raw sex in, in the air was, you know, far more potent in California state capital than on most uh, porn sets that I've been on. Really, the further you get from D.C., I think things get even crazy. Like the Nevada GOP stuff I've seen is just like mind blowing. The Alaska GOP stuff I've seen is even more crazy. So, uh, you know, you were in California. Did you like during the during the Schwarzenegger years? Did you like you know, what, what, what were the things you saw or if you can if you can speak on them? Yeah, I mean, surprisingly, that particular campaign was not as dramatic as you would hope or maybe imagine that it was. Um, I think he tried to do something out of political naivete, which is he basically had a bipartisan cabinet that doesn't actually work. I mean, it's a it's an interesting idea. Um, but it really, it didn't work. And it created a pretty dysfunctional internal system in terms of California government. But I think, you know, sadly, a lot of the movies that you've seen about sort of, you know, House of Cards, I mean, while the, you know, cinematography was dramatic, there wasn't a lot of untruth relative to what they were showing. Um, yeah, let's not forget that Kevin Spacey shadowed Kevin McCarthy <laughs> absolutely. Throughout, throughout, that, throughout that whole Ab process. And uh, Absolutely. We and I think this goes back to Charles, kind of what I said earlier, which is the farther away you are from direct accountability with the public, and the more that you're insulated with the ability to kind of do what you want, and that could sound hyperbolic, but it's not. Or at least there's oftentimes a perception in that lifetime of a candidate where you're pretty convinced you can do whatever you want to do. You do see that sort of base behavior. You just do. Um, so there's a great documentary on Netflix, uh, Chimp Empire, has all the cutthroat drama of uh, the TV show Succession with, with all the, the politics. So I'm just a few minutes in, but uh, a lot of good stuff in this doco. In the forest of Ngogo, it's not wise in Uganda. to spend too much time alone. That's true. Right? That's, that's true in, uh, <laughs> in Los Angeles as well. Right? Not just uh, in the forests of uh, Ngogo. Not wise to spend too much time alone. Right? You really want to be in the middle of the pack. Right? That's what's best for your welfare. The Chimp Empire documentary on With Netflix. so many chimps all trying to make their way, there's a lot of competition. Life here involves politics. 
Right, so we are closer to chimps than any other animal. And power. Ngogo society is a hierarchy. And the chimps are always looking for opportunities to move up. Right, so I think if you're on the right, aren't you more at ease with the hierarchical nature of reality? And the hierarchical nature of human organizations and are you more at ease with the natural passions such as self-advancement lust power fame uh, money all that i would think that you would be better equipped to deal with the base realities of human nature with a right-wing orientation as opposed to the left-wing desire that we transcend our natures that we that we become you know reflexive and and protected against, you know, the traditional notions of contagion. Just amazing camera work, amazing, you know, high quality footage of these apes. They're just stunning. And then the, the way they groom each other. At the, the top of the hierarchy sits the on. most powerful chimp in Ngogo. Right, this Jackson, guy's been number one. Right, the number alpha one. male. Alpha male for like six years. But he's getting old. Wow. Just, I mean, just seeing him leap from branch to branch. Running down the forest. He's been on top for six years, man. Pretty powerful dude. Just huge. I mean, these chips have to constantly form alliances with each other, and uh, they you know, cement their alliances by you know, scratching and grooming each other. And, uh, and then they're always trying to move up to protect their place in the hierarchy. The higher you are in the hierarchy, the more access you have to food and to women. Jackson has been in charge for six years now. But he's getting old for an alpha. If he's going to stay on top, he can't show any weakness. Sound familiar? He needs to display his strength. So he goes on rampages, just like uh, blokes do, to try to show how strong they are, depending on the, the context. Planning. Persuading. Persuade. Maintain their status. Plotting. And grooming each other, showing tenderness, love, and affection. It's called Chimp Empire on Netflix. The number one is Jackson. Number two is Miles, who's also the biggest chimp. He is enormous, but he's like 40 years old. Grooming forms alliances. And there's Carter, number five, Morton, number six. And Alliances number four. create power. Evans, number seven. Right there, about a hundred. Even the strongest chimps 40 chimps struggle there. to dominate Wilson, number eight. alone. Yeah, really hard to live alone. And so Who your grooming partners chimp. are says a lot about your status and ambitions. Right? The more status you are, the higher status you want your grooming partner. 
But if you don't have grooming partners, there's Abrams, number three in the hierarchy. Right, he gets to, to groom high-status ships. So there are about 120, 140 in all in this part of Uganda. But if you aren't grooming with anyone... Very clear hierarchy. Status and ambition are the least of your worries. Right, if you don't have friends, if you don't have community... Poor old Gus here, he's 14... 14 is not an easy age for a male chimp. Yeah, I mean, chimps who need chimps are the luckiest chimps in the world. You've grown apart from your mother. And you need to start bonding with other males. That comes more easily to some than others. Poor Gus, he's got to find a way to make his uh, make his fortune in a tough, tough world. A lot easier to do it when you have other Closer people. to the truth, but it doesn't seem to be that way a lot of times. Sounds a lot like Scientology. Right, right. It's like constant, like, hide the ball, hide the information. Or like, uh, you know, as my experience as a kid, as a Jehovah's Witness, uh, you know, they keep moving the ball. Like, it'll be this year, then it'll be this year. Uh, like, trust the plan. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's almost like they learned everything they learned from religion, right? Yeah, yep. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a good way. It's a good way to keep everybody herded and moving in one direction. You know, it's a complicated world, that's for sure. I'm gonna I'm gonna change the title and say uh, we got rid of, we got rid of Tucker. Um, I'm trying to be not mean about the Tucker thing, but it's really hard. There's a guy that might come in here. His name is uh, he's got a cool uh, screen name, Saged Wizard. And uh, he was going back and forth with me and Dana because he pointed out or she pointed out that uh, uh, Tucker and Don Lemon had the same lawyer and he started just uh, tweeting some really crazy stuff at us. And so he wanted to get us both in his space. And he, he's a very strange person. Of course, he hides behind an avatar and has a Bitcoin address. Vanity plate and a convertible. And so now I, like basically just to make myself accountable. And so now when I drive, I, I just I, I drive in a very respectful kind of way. Like I wave to people. I don't really speed. I don't whatever, you know. Right. Because you don't want your car to become so, somebody's toilet. That's right. And and I also have noticed that, like, you know, when you drive around in your car and you are invisible or protected or tinted windows or whatever, or no license plate or whatever, you can do whatever the fuck you want, really. Which is a practical thing. So anyway, it's just something to think about. What did you guys think of the piece I wrote about uh, our boy Stephen Crowder? Uh, you know, it's interesting. And, uh, you know, I think he's he's got a lot of issues. It's, it's um it's sad, though, because you see people get you. You see people that are like you were saying that um, are victims and hurt people hurt people. And so, you know, it's, uh, it's just sad. I hope, uh, I hope he gets everything worked out just for his kids. Cause he seems like a decently, like a nice guy, but you know, uh, I gotta say, I was somewhat shocked that he was married and I was somewhat shocked that he was heterosexual. Yeah. Yeah. He always gave off vibes as not, uh, well, he got in drag a lot and did a lot. I mean, he was in drag like more times than uh, a lot of like these drag time, uh, drag show story times or whatever they call them. Well, I watched his show, uh, today for the first time. Ever. Uh -huh. Um, just because I was kind of curious, right? Like, what's the deal here? Like, why is he worth all the money that they were going to give him? And because, you know, I don't know. It's like, it's like kind of like, it's like when I diligence a company, right? I spend a lot of time sort of thinking about the company. Uh, by the way, I'm cutting cucumbers now, not to be phallic or anything, but just this year. I had to make a salad for somebody tomorrow um, as, a, as a birthday gift. So that's what that sound is. Um, yeah, Johnson I mean, basically, speaking. what can I say about this? I mean, it seems to me that there's something very weird on the right where, you know, you look at some of these things, quote unquote, condemning the transsexual or condemning the gay person or whatever. And the way it kind of feels is that like, they're actually advertising 
the gay or tranny things, right? Yes. Because, like, I got to tell you, like, as a heterosexual dude, like, I don't really care about the homos. Like, no disrespect to them. Like, I wish them well. But, like, I'm too busy chasing women and chasing money to care about the gays. Yeah. Right. Just, like, it, it goes back. Yeah. yeah. It's a... Uh... Like, I, I, I treat the gays kind of like I do when I go to the zoo, you know what I mean? Like, with my, with my little kid, uh, where it's like, oh, that's interesting, <laughs> you know? Like, I treat it very sociologically, and not in, like, a mean way, like, you know, like, oh, wow, I didn't know that, like, you know? <laughs> it's just, it makes me laugh, you know what I mean? And so, when people get all worked up about it, same thing with the trannies or the drag queens or whatever, when people get really worked up about it, I'm just like, they're clearly, like, there's clearly something going on there, you know what I mean? Um, it's just interesting, you know? It's interesting. So, anyway, so I watched the show, and it's, like, sexual innuendo after sexual innuendo after sexual innuendo, almost all of it on the gay kind of side of things. Okay, I don't think that's true. Chuck Johnson isn't a terribly religious man, but the more traditional you are, the more likely you are to be on alert for contagion. And so the stronger your disgust reflex is going to be. So Chuck Johnson apparently doesn't have much of a disgust reflex. Things, you know what I mean? And I started to realize, I, you know, I have a bunch of friends here in Northern Virginia that are kind of evangelical types. And there's a whole lot of them that kind of fit the Steven Crowder and his wife profile, where like they waited until marriage, you know, until they were like out of, you know, they waited to have sex until marriage. They're like relatively young when they get married. And uh, they kind of don't really know themselves all that much, you know. Um, in my case, you know, I got married, you know, the first time I got married, I was 24. And I was kind of more, I wasn't quite more religious. I was just kind of much more, um, I was more like traditionally minded. You know what I mean? I thought that if I like got married, I would be like, I thought that it would solve a lot of like the loneliness I felt having let, moved across country, you know, and I, I was not particularly close to my parents who, who weren't really, you know, supportive of me going to college and other things in my life, mostly because my mother was sick. My mother had, had, had cancer throughout my childhood. So they just like weren't, they were absent parents, I guess you could say. And because um, they were sort of dealing with that. So anyway, um, and I was a good student, so I didn't want them to be like preoccupied with me or whatever. So I got married at 24 and my then wife was 27. So an older woman. So we sort of had to make a decision, you know, like, are you going to get married? Are we going to have kids? Are we going to whatever? So a lot of these guys, these people that I meet who, who got married, obviously the marriage didn't last, you know, and I am somewhat sympathetic to Stephen because I had a similar. Okay, let's get some video here. I drew a boundary. I drew a boundary. No, no, you just did, you just did it. I drew a boundary in abusive and cruel. You were not taking the car. Because if you refuse to do wifely things, then I will go pick up the groceries. American groceries. Steaks, wood pellets, my grill. I know it's not a reasonable request, but I'll go do it. How about you first? Hillary, how do you respect the man? Yes, how do you man? I'm the man. You see the love of No, no. How do you man? No, you're not taking the car. You're not taking the car. You are not taking the car. Then I will ask them to pick me up. Would you like me to ask? Oh, that's right. It's not a threat, Get an Uber. Okay, Stephen, I can't. Feeling some constraints? Stephen. Like, I can't Steven. go. I, listen to me. Listen to me. You want to walk out right now? Listen to me. I can't go to the gym. I can't go to my parents. I can't call my friends. I can't go, I can't be home. You're going to take the car and leave me here. Hillary, just think of how boxed in you've made me. What do you need me to pick up? I'll get it. I'll be back when I'm back. No, that doesn't work either. You'll be back when you're back. That doesn't work either. See. I, I, Do you understand the difference between my life being set to the second and you going to the back on back? The only way out of it is discipline or stuff. It's the only way out of it, or we're at an impact. We are at an impact. Good. Because you can't have any discipline or stuff. There you go. You throw your hand, you give up so easily. I don't give up, Stephen. You give up so easily. I just said the only way out of this is discipline or respect. You said, then we're at an impact. Stephen, no, we are at an impact. Okay? I love you, but Stephen, 
Watch it. Watch it. Fucking watch it. I'm gonna let go, I'll get what you need me to get. And I, I need some space. We need to just stop engaging for a little bit. Okay? I love you. I love you very much. I don't love you. That's the big problem. I've never received love from you. And the fact is, when I go, look, I need you to do A, B, C, and D, you just be disciplined about it, you go, no. But I love you more than life itself. Okay. Put on some gloves. No. But I love you more than life itself. That's not fair. That's not fair, and it's disingenuous. Hillary, you're right, right in the past. Become someone that's you make day in and day out, worthy of a life worth. No, not as a life. I didn't say as a wife. Hillary, Hillary, come on now. I'm not going to engage. I'm not going to engage anymore. I'm going to go. I'll get texting what you need. I'll get you what you need. I, I love you. I'm committed to you. Are you committed enough to do those things? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not committed to those things. You're not committed to anything. You're not committed to anything. You just said I love you. I'm committed to that. Walk the dogs, put on some gloves. Walk the dogs, put on some gloves. Are you committed enough to do those things? Are you committed enough to do those things? Are you committed enough to do those things? Walk the dogs, put on some gloves. Are you committed enough to get the medication the dogs take? Don't you take that in. Uh, getting angry and angry, screaming at his uh, pregnant wife, and then uh, flees his home. That was Stephen Crowder in action. Yeah, as, as he tells it anyway, I had a similar situation where my then wife was like, "Hey, I, I don't want to be married anymore," and uh, it's kind of a painful conversation. It does happen, you know, to people. And uh, in her case, it was, uh, yeah, I, I don't really know what was going on with you know my ex-wife, but she hasn't remarried, hasn't so much as dated since, and it's been. I think we're going on five or six years, or five. What is it? Yeah, it would be it would be five years now, five six years. So, so I am sympathetic. You know, like a lot of times in life, people's personal lives just don't work out for whatever reason, and um, and so we should be kind of sympathetic about it. But it does raise a lot of questions, right? Like, it raises a lot of questions about why it didn't work out. And in the case of Crowder, it seems pretty clear to me that he's gay. You know, like conversations I've had around him, people I know who like him. You know, there's something kind of effeminate about like dressing up every day. So my read on it is basically the Republican Party, particularly the influencer side, is like half half gay, half foreign operatives of different countries, right? And Ben Shapiro is clearly in the foreign operative category. Um, but some of them might be kind of both. And that's kind of the thing I've been sort of thinking about and wrestling with is there's something very performative, something very like gay adjacent, I think, about a lot of politics, right? It's sort of like trying to present yourself in certain ways. And I'll say this in a negative way, right? Like I think, I actually think like, you know, having dealt with the British, you know, the British basically take a lot of their gay men and they put them into like the foreign service equivalent. Uh, and, you know, I've known a number of priests over the years and nobody like comes out and tells you like, hey, this priest is gay. But, you know, you get the vibe. You know what I mean? Like, there's a reason evolutionarily that we have such things as like or, or pedophase or whatever. Like, there's something about human nature no, no, you where you can kind of pick up on it. It's much the same way that your brain can tell people are likely related to each other or of certain ethnicities. And, you know, some of work in facial recognition, you know, and training. If you wife me things, then I will go pick up the groceries. Steaks, wood pellets, my grill. I know it's not a reasonable request. But I'll go do it. How about you first? Hillary, how do you respect the man? Yes. How do you man? How do man? You see the love of us. Respect. No, no. How do you man? No, you're not taking the cover. You're not taking the cover. You are not taking the cover. Then I will ask them to pick me up. Would you like me to ask? Oh, that's right. It's not even that, Stephen. Give it an Uber. Okay, Stephen, I can't some algorithms on that category there clearly are people that are like better at this than others but anyway so in the case of steven 
I first encountered Stephen, and he was working for this guy. His name was Kerry Katz, K-A-T-Z. And Kerry Katz was this billionaire based out of San Diego initially, but then Las Vegas, and he was like a student loan billionaire. And he was a big backer of like Mark Levin and some other characters. And so Stephen kind of tried to present this image of like, oh, I'm not a billionaire-backed guy, right? Like, I'm independent. I got Mud Club, right, for whatever he was doing. And I just always kind of wondered about like how these things actually work in practice. Because, you know, one of the things, when I was a kid, I went to, um, I went to, uh, uh, I went, you know, when I was in, in college, one time I sort of like rode the bus up to go see Hearst Castle when I was a young man going to college in California. It was like, it's like 18, 19, and no, I was 18. And I didn't have the money to go back to see, to Boston where I'm from. So I took the train up and I think I like took a bus or some shit. And it was like, it was like a whole ordeal just getting there. And in, um, when I was in college, you know, what would happen is because I was in California and from Massachusetts, as I said, I didn't have no money to go home. I had a tent. And so what I would do is basically like camp all over California and kind of like the off time or whatever, you know, like when people are going Thanksgiving or they're, you know, whatever, there's March break or whatever. It's like, oh, yeah, California's warm. Like, how bad could it be? Just like get pretty fucking cold in California, just for the record. Um, but, uh, but anyway, so I went up to Hearst Castle and I was fascinated by this guy, Hearst, and I was fascinated by Rupert Murdoch, who I later met. And so I've always been interested in the economics of like, how do people actually make money in these businesses? And what you realize rather quickly is like, they don't. They, uh, they basically get like billionaire sugar daddies who basically finance everything. And because the billionaire sugar daddies don't want people to know, oftentimes, right, just like real sugar daddies, I guess, um, they, uh, they sort of pretend that they're all businesses, right? So what ends up happening in practice is you get a Tucker Carlson, and what Tucker Carlson does is he's got this thing that, like, what David Brooks called uh, status, status income disequilibrium, right? So Tucker's on TV, and all the billionaires wish they were on TV. So what he does is he'll go to all these events. He'll go to, like, the RNC events for, like, high net worth donors, or this event, or that event, or what have you, right? And so he'll travel around going to all these events and he'll go give speeches at people's like Republican clubs. And, you know, people think it's really cool that Tucker Carlson's here and he'll make like 50 grand a speech or 100 grand a speech at your Lincoln Day dinner or whatever in Schenectady, New York or what have you. And that's kind of how a lot of them like really make money. You know, that's kind of like the sideline deal that they all have. And in the case of Tucker, you know, Tucker was under sustained advertiser boycotts, you know, over the years. And in particular, like his largest investor. And by the way, you know, somebody in this group is, is helping me on this, but we are genetically sequencing all of the MyPillow stuff. We went and sent the samples off to the lab today. I'm going to have an update about that on the Substack because our, our contention is that the MyPillow stuff wasn't all made in America, but actually has slave labor from China. And I, I think the evidence is pretty clear that it's not from Giza, Egypt, or whatever the fuck he was saying. So anyway, um, what happened was, so Tucker would get all these eyeballs on his show, right? Get really high ratings, right? But the advertisers, you know, many of whom have like, you know, they have women and gay men running their PR shop, right? Or their HR shop. And what was happening is the advertisers over time were fleeing Tucker's show. So Tucker would get all these eyeballs, but he wouldn't actually be able to convert it into like real money. And so that's kind of the, the environment that we found ourselves in with the Tucker Carlson show. And if you're thinking about it from the perspective of Rupert Murdoch, you know, you have to kind of offer something, you know, after the January's, you know, the January 6th debacle, right? We saw the Ray Epps, you know, 60 Minutes show. Um, and the guy who was kind of pushing the whole 60 Minutes nonsense, or the, the whole Ray Epps story was, of course, Darren Beatty. And Darren Beatty, you know, a Revolver News, very close to George O'Neill. The O'Neills are very connected with the Russians. They're Rockefellers, I think, by blood. Uh, Catherine O'Neill, you know, is a, is a sort of a, like Rockefeller type. She worked in the in the uh, in the State Department, and her grandmother was Ambassador Faith Whittlesley, uh, who was involved with the Rockford Institute, which is a kind of, you know, it was a sort of like right wing kind of thing. She was Catholic. She was Ambassador to Switzerland under Reagan. There's all kinds of shady shit going on then. Anyway, she was a she was a nice, a dear lady, Ambassador Whittlesley. I, I liked her a lot, even though she was kind of crazy. Uh, she was dying of cancer when I knew her. She'd like lost her eye. It was a whole thing. Anyway, um, what was I saying about this? Oh, yeah. So basically, uh, Revolver News, you know, has the billionaire sugar daddy of all the Russians. You know, Darren Beatty is, of course, married to, a, or he's either married or engaged to. Uh, he's certainly knocked up, and he has had a kid with um, a Russian woman. And I believe he lives in Florida, I think, memory serves. And Darren and I were friends during the Trump years. 
we were actually the only two people on the Claremont listserv back way back in 2016 to, to predict that Donald Trump would win the nomination. And I helped Darren actually get a job as a speechwriter uh, for Donald J. Trump. And he was a speechwriter for Donald J. Trump. And he, it was discovered that he'd given a speech before the, the, uh, the sort of like, I guess it would be like a pro-immigration restriction outfit. That was sort of like what it was. It was sort of like, Vita. they weren't exactly white nationalists, but they weren't not white nationalists. You know the type I'm talking about? Like Peter Brimelow was there, that kind of crowd. And anyway, so, um, so what happened was he was sort of like let up the building and basically forced out into the wilds because a lot of uh, Israeli types, particularly like uh, ADL types, right? So you're sort of more Mossad type, not your Likud, you know, Netanyahu type, but you're more like, you know, mainstream, uh, you know, Israel type. So ADL types typically. So he was, um, I'm trying to think how I describe this. He was basically dealing with that whole situation and he got, he basically got fired from the White House. He was out on his own and I recommended to Matt Gates that he hire him. So that he wasn't like destitute or whatever, and he hired him, and then went right into the arms of the Russians, which is no good. Which of course raises the question of whether or not he was always Russian. I tend to think no, personally. Um, I think it was very traumatic for Darren, as a sort of secular Jewish kid, to be attacked as a quote-unquote anti-Semitic Jew. Uh, this is a guy who grew up in Palau, of all places, where his where his father was some kind of like government functionary, and he's somebody who had a lot of resentment. You know, he went got his PhD. He was effectively fired from Duke as a professor because he had backed Donald Trump. So there's a lot of resentments, and you'll see this theme of resentment a lot with uh, with uh, a lot of the people around Tucker. Tucker himself has all these resentments that he doesn't leave the country, and it's a very common refrain that you see from a lot of the Gen Xer types. And it's not without some grounding, you know, because like it is true that a lot of them like haven't been allowed to do a lot of cool things with their life, which they should have been allowed to do. But you know, they were smaller in number than the boomers, and the boomers just sort of stayed in power. You know, it's not really like anybody's fault. You know, it just is a demographic kind of thing, right? So a lot of them kind of have this approach to life where they're kind of observing life. Right. They're sort of like having a cool detached thing. They're sort of like talking about the elites or the media or whatever. Right. From the sidelines, because they're not really allowed to participate. Is this making sense so far? I'm trying to see if it's making sense. I'm making a salad while I talk to all of you. Yeah, making sense. So, yeah. So the way to kind of understand Tucker is Tucker is kind of the fail son of a very august family. And he's a fail son who like went to the right schools. He's got the nutter mom who abandoned the family age six. You know, Tucker was six. And so, you know, if you had that experience, you might have some, like, rough views on women, right? And, you know, he, he and his brother, you know, didn't go to her, you know, work, work there when she died, right? She was trying to basically, like, patch things up before she was traveling off her mortal coil. They were basically, like, pretty, pretty against her. Now, I personally have seen Tucker, you know, say a lot of, like, rough things about women. Um, I've also seen him say, like, very nice things about women. So, you know, I, 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 it's hard to get a good read on him. I think he's duplicitous. And I've had sort of similar experiences over the years where he was, he would tell me one thing and then betray me. You know, the, the biggest example of that was he was very close with Jamie Weinstein. And when I was at the Daily Caller, I broke a number of stories about uh, Cory Booker living in Newark, uh, not li really living in Newark, actually living in New York. And the Israelis at the time were trying to extort Cory Booker. Um, this was like 2013, 2014 period. They were trying to extort him over his whole homosexuality because he's like very obviously gay for anyone who knows, who knows Cory Booker. And, uh, you know, he's not really dating Rosario Dawson. Sorry, friends. Um, which, uh, which is just as well, because I, I would have loved to have Rosaria Dawson, even though she's like much older, much, much too old for me now, alas. Um, anyway, uh, so yeah, so I broke that story, and BuzzFeed's Rosie Gray, Rosie Gray being a very like Likud heavy, you know, reporter chick, she, um, she, was, she came after me on that story. And, uh, and so I, you know, they, she then went to Tucker to try to pressure Tucker to fire me. I was an independent contractor, so I was like, screw this, I don't need to work for you, and sort of went in a different direction. And of course, a lot of BuzzFeed's investors were Cory Booker's donors which is kind of interesting in its own right. So there's a lot of this like duplicitous shit that you see in the media if you're around it long enough. Anyway, um, I guess what I would just say on the Tucker front is it seems to me that like a lot of these people kind of came up in a low interest rate environment 
in a, you know, you know, from basically 08 to 2021, or even if you want to go further back, they came up in kind of a neocon environment. And I think Tucker was kind of the controlled anti-neocon in that way. You know, he was pro-Iraq war, which of course now he deeply regrets, of course, right? Because nobody, nobody actually defends the Iraq war unless they're really crazy, like Bill Crystal or something. And so um, he was a kind of like controlled opposition. If you'll recall, he did a story, I think it was for Politico, basically defending Trump from a quote-unquote elite perspective. And this sort of presented the, the story that he was a kind of Trump whisperer. He could talk to those voters. And when I was dealing with Roger Ailes back in the day, back when Roger was still alive, the thinking was, was that Tucker could reach a quote-unquote younger demographic. He was sort of Gen Z. He was sort of hip. Why he'd been on Dancing with the Stars. You know, the, the thinking was, was that this, you know, a bunch of boomers and silent generation people would feel comfortable watching a Gen X guy. And that's kind of like, that's kind of the Tucker story in, in essence. Now, Tucker and I privately would have all kinds of conversations about Likud, about Israel, about how crazy some of these Jews were. Okay. So these are real conversations that he and I would have, particularly about Ben Smith. He was not a fan of Ben Smith, nor was I. And with good reason, I should add. And so he, he had a lot of like, he had a lot of, uh, what can I say about this? So he had a lot of dislike of a lot of the same people I had dislike of, but not necessarily for the same reasons. And I was mistaken in thinking that we were allies in that. So in, in 2017, uh, and I've, I've written about this and talked about this elsewhere, but in 2017, uh, the CIA asked me to go see Julian Assange. And I had access to Julian Assange through Congressman Rohrbacher. If you Google Charles C. Johnson, Julian Assange, you'll pull it up. You can see it for yourself. It's, it's out there, as it were. And there's a picture of me, you know, with a tie on wearing, you know, right across from the, you know, Hungary, or I think it was the Ecuadorian embassy with a, uh, with a poster that says, um, with a poster that says, uh, uh, that said basically uh, free Assange with me and Congressman Dana Rohrbacher. Now, for those who don't kind of know, Dana Rohrbacher was a member of Congress, very friendly with the Russians, quite possibly a homosexual himself. Um, he sort of came up through a kind of gay network in, uh, in D.C. Um, he and his wife, who, who happened later on in his life, he was, he was married once, got divorced, then remarried. He married a woman who a lot of people say is a lesbian, at the very least was bi. They had kids through IVF. Anyway, he was a very, is a very nice guy. He's a lobbyist now, does a lot with the Russians. Very interesting dude. Anyway, he and I went to go see Assange, and Assange told me there that his source were the Israelis, not the Russians. And I reported that to the FBI. I reported that to the CIA. And of course, when I came back to America, my phones were immediately hacked, and I got calls from Michael Isikoff, and all these other like pro-Israeli you know reporters, the people who wanted to make a Russia collusion story, the ones who really wanted us not to focus on the Israeli involvement in 2016, who wanted us to talk a lot about the Russian stuff. Because of that experience, I was brought into the Mueller report, and I'm in the uh, redacted part of the Mueller report. The Senate Intelligence Committee. Uh, there was a guy there named uh, what the hell was that guy's name? Not Webb. What's his name? James Wolf. Wolf was the guy's name. He was a sort of Inspector Javert to my Jean Valjean, and he was fucking this. Um, this woman, Allie Watkins, who was at BuzzFeed, and he was leaking more than seminal fluids to her, presumably, but giving her lots of information. He lied to the FBI. He got fired. And I made it very clear that I wasn't going to testify. And he kept saying, well, we're going to subpoena you. We're going to this. We're going to that. And he kept asking for my address to send a subpoena. I kept telling him to go fuck himself. And of course, I was Linda tripping the whole time. Like I was James O'Keefe. I was recording the phone calls the whole time with this guy because I knew who sent me and I knew that I would never testify. And the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee, his boss, um, who was uh, the Senate intelligence guy, Burr, Richard Burr, uh, was at Senate Intel, was, was hugely backed by the Israeli wing of the GOP, in particular by Paul Singer. And I understand now that Paul Singer personally instructed him to come after me because of the Julian Assange stuff. So anyway, uh, the reason I mention all of this is that um, a lot, there was a lot of pressure on me, a lot of spying around me around this period. And I can kind of talk about it now. Uncle Sam is kind of cool with that. Came back to the U.S., was kind of chilling, you know, doing my thing, dealing with a woman who didn't want to be my wife anymore, who was telling me I never did anything social. So, of course, you know, I was like, I'll show her. And I signed up to go to all these different political events 
after 2016, basically during 2016. And for those who kind of don't know me IRL, like I'm a pretty like low key dude. Like I, I work on my computer, I go to lunch. I, you know, I, when I throw dinner parties, I have at most five people at the dinner parties. You know, I'm not a typically social person, um, contrary to popular perception. So what would happen was I said, you know, as I was separated from my then wife, I was like, well, I'll just sign, anytime somebody invites me to something, I will go to it because like I'll show her uh, new, you know, new life, new me, you know, I can be social, I can be outgoing. This is an extremely bad idea, just FYI, if, especially after the 2016 election. And I agreed to go to, I think this is a 2018 period, I agreed to go to the State of the Union uh, when Congressman Matt Gates invited me. Which, of course, who noticed me being there, the Daily Beast and BuzzFeed and a number of other people, and they were trying to figure out who had invited me to be at the State of the Union. Now, Matt Gates, of course, invited me. Matt Gates, is, uh, Matt Gates did it because in those days I was seen as Peter Thiel's guy, because Peter Thiel and I had worked together on the 2016 election and also on bankrupting Gawker. But, you know, the, the sort of frame of the world is that I must have been some billionaire's bitch rather than having aligned interests with that billionaire, which is indeed what actually happened in the history of it. Um, I was always very skeptical of Peter's closeness with the Netanyahu crowd, with the Israelis generally. I always kind of found him, you know, he's, he's an okay guy. You know, he's a little weird. He's a little autistic. And he's a little, you know, we're just, we're not on the same, we're not cut from the same cloth, right? But like when a billionaire calls you and you're like in your late 20s, mid to late 20s, it's super flattering. And particularly when he does what you tell him to do, that's also pretty cool, right? So anyway, um, Matt Gates gets all this pressure. He's targeted because he invited me to the State of the Union by the Israeli world. ADL is like, Charles Johnson is a Holocaust denier. Uh, oh, I forgot to mention, uh, a lot of my British friends, a lot of my FBI friends and others were like, hey, would you mind going to all these like super controversial meetings? And I was like, why? No problem at all. Like, I'm happy to go to them. Like, I'm still Charles Johnson everywhere I go. Right. I can go hang out with black nationalists one day and white nationalists the next. Right. You know, just sort of having a kind of like uh, who's that BBC dude, the guy who goes to all these like weird, you know, he goes to all these like weird places. Uh, the one who's Louis something, you know, guys know who I'm talking about, Louis, Louis Peru or something like that. Louis anyway, Peru. so I would go to all these things that I'd get invited to because my wife doesn't want me in the house and I'm pretty depressed. And so I go to all these things and um. So Ron DeSantis, who at that point is about to run for governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis wants Peter Thiel's money. So Ron DeSantis tells Peter Thiel, or excuse me, tells, um, tells Matt Gates, hey, will you give Charles Johnson a ticket to the State of the Union? And of course, like I being a nerd and a loser and a whatever was like, oh, fuck, that's awesome. Like, I'm gonna go to the State of the Union, right? Like, I was all excited. Of course, you know, I get targeted by the Israelis pretty roughly. And Jake Tapper is there on TV. You know, Jake Tapper, of course, has all these Mossad connections and Israeli connections and has for many years, by the way. This is not a secret for those who are curious about this. And uh, Jake Tapper is, of course, going after Matt Gates, going after him pretty rough, you know, basically. Um, and, you know, I'm at, at this point, like my then wife was like, hey, I don't want to be married. I'm about to get divorced. I'm drinking pretty heavily. I'm borrowing a friend's sports car. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I'm being attacked as a Holocaust denier when I basically did what the U.S. government asked me to do. My wife is leaving me. My businesses are all like somewhat in trouble. And I'm thinking to myself, like, maybe I should just drink a bunch and, like, there's a curve by my house. Maybe I should just, like, not take it. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if any of you have ever had those kind of experiences, but you're kind of thinking to yourself, maybe this isn't for me. Maybe this whole world is not for me. And I get a call from Matt Gates. Matt Gates is getting attacked. And he calls me up and he's like, what the fuck is going on? And I said, well, Matt, here's the deal. Um, I'm not any of these things people say I am. And you have no reason to believe me. But if you want to condemn me publicly... Whatever, man, that's your prerogative. But I'm just letting you know that me and none of my friends will ever, ever, ever help you on anything ever again in your life. That basically, if you denounce me, you're fucked. So you can do it if you want. And frankly, like, you don't know me, no big deal. I'm not gonna be upset about it. It is what it is. And I, of course, like, you know, uh, he's like, Jake Tapper's calling me. Uh, who's, that, who's that Hispanic chick who converted to Episcopalianism? Eliana Roth Layton, who's of course CIA, in case you didn't know, she's a lobbyist for UAE now. And she, of course, uh, her, her campaign manager was Jeb Bush, of course, back right after he came back from Venezuela when he was quote unquote a banker. End quote. Okay, sure, whatever. 
And, you know, Eliana Ross Layton is, you know, is telling Matt Gates, hey, you need to condemn him, you need to do whatever. Jake Tapio, Matt's like, hey, Jake Tapper's calling me, Jake Tapper's calling you, Holocaust denier, what say you? I said, well, I'm not any of those things, but you do what you got to do, man. And I don't think anything of it. I order like five or six more old fashions. And frankly, I drank so much, I passed out at the bar. So like, obviously my plan to kill myself that night did not work out. And I sobered up, you know, woke up, you know, sort of cleaned myself up, you know, as they were closing down the bar and went to the shitty hotel room I was living out of at the time. And while I'm there, while I'm at my hotel, I am seeing uh, a text message from Tucker Carlson condemning me being like, what the fuck? How could you say all these things? I was like, well, I actually was like trying to get the subreddit shut down for the alt-right because Steve Bannon asked me to. And I was trying to clean up all these quote, unquote far right things. But it didn't matter. Tucker was like, well, I'm going to condemn you. I'm going to whatever. And then I see the replay in my hotel room of Matt Gaetz uh, talking, to, uh, talking to Jake Tapper. And Matt Gaetz is repeatedly defending me. Somebody he did not know, right? We'd met like once or twice, maybe three times before that. But we weren't like best friends for life. And here he was like effortlessly defending me in front of everybody on CNN. And then you know, a day or two goes by. Tucker was like apparently talking to Matt Gaetz. They were having a conversation. And Tucker was basically like, well, you know, you should have condemned him. You should have this. You should have that. And Matt was like, yeah, I don't really think any of those things are true about Charles. And, of course, Tucker at the same time is, like, texting me all these supportive things or he's trying to, like, engage with me, trying to figure out things about what was going on. He's trying to, like, learn about the Assange visit. He's trying to learn about, you know, what I've been up to, basically, since I stopped working with him. And he's basically being duplicitous. He's living the kind of double life, right? He's, like, telling people one thing. He's basically putting himself at the center of all this information. And I, of course, you know, don't think anything of it. Yeah, I'm like, oh, Tucker's duplicitous, but, like, whatever. He's politician, you know, political person. And, you know, basically, I was like, all right, I have to be loyal to Matt Gates. That was sort of my thinking at the time. And, uh, you know, it's still basically held up over the years. But what I was trying to say about this whole kind of setup, the thing to kind of understand generally, is that pretty much all of these people who are in public life, who are famous on the right, have all, like, cucked in some key way to the Israel lobby, to the Netanyahu world. And there's a lot of reasons they've done it. There are lots of Jewish billionaires in this country who really love Netanyahu. There are lots of hardcore Christians who really love Netanyahu. Uh, even though his government right now is basically making it a crime to practice Christianity there. I don't know how they square that one. I mean, it's never really been explained to me. But one of the things I've learned over time is that many of the people who claim to be Christians aren't. And many of the people who claim to be atheists are actually kind of more Christian, which is like one of those things that you kind of only learn when you're in your 30s and aren't as autistic and have sobered up. So anyway, um, time goes by. I don't really think much of this stuff. But I noticed that like Tucker is privately asking me these questions about what's going on with Israel, what's going on with Paul Singer, what's going on with this person, that person. And if you watch his segment on Paul Singer, you know, you'll see this segment that breaks away where I texted Tucker, basically like, hey, man, I'm afraid of Paul Singer. Paul Singer is like behind the Fusion GPS dossier. Paul Singer is like a real motherfucker. Like this guy's serious. He, he plays to win. And like, I'm afraid of him, like straight up. So I did, texted him and I was like, wow, you're going after Paul Singer on Fox News. Like, wow, this is interesting. Right. And of course, he reads my text on air and basically tries to make it like, oh, I'm a tough guy. You're taking on Paul Singer. And then, of course, all kinds of terrible things start happening in Tucker's personal life. Because, you know, for those who don't know, Paul Singer is kind of a proxy for the Mossad. Paul Singer is the one, by the way, who called up Mitt Romney and told him his uh, running mate was going to be Paul Ryan. Just think about that. So, you know, being you win the nomination of your party and you're called up and you're told who your nominee is going to be or who your vice presidential candidate is going to be. So anyway, uh, what can I say about this? Um, my basic read is that the Republican Party, until it sheds itself of the Netanyahu problem and it sheds itself of the Fox problem, is going to basically be a cult. Like it's, it's not a real political party in any meaningful way. Now, that's not to say it's not fun being a part of a cult. Okay. Like there's lots of people who enjoy being a part of the cult. I mean, if you watch that wild, wild country or whatever thing, like some of those chicks are pretty hot. They'd fuck out in the woods, you know, they'd have all their, their lives taken care of for them. You know, if you study any of these cults, like they all start out like super fun, you know, like they are like, I don't mean to be like, there's gotta be a reason people join cults and you know, you see them and there's all these like nerdy dudes who are like engineers or whatever. And they're building this giant community. You get to do some drugs and you get to sleep with that hippie chick or that hippie chick or that other hippie chick. And it's kind of fun. I would imagine, you know, having not joined a cult myself. 
And, you know, you go and you see like a Turning Point USA event or you see a lot of these Republican events and they become increasingly devoid of content. And they smack, they sort of seem like evangelical, like revival meetings, right? It's sort of like, I don't know if you guys have seen the Instagram preachers with sneakers or whatever. It's like talking about all these rich evangelicals. And so you go to these events, right? And it's like, yeah, we're for Trump, 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 Trump. And you're like, hey, what are we going to actually do, right? Like if we take over the government. And what I realized in 2016 was that like I was the only person in the country that had a list of people to go serve in the Trump government because Trump himself didn't think he was going to win. So just think about that. Like me, age 27, I think it was 27, 28 at the time, uh, was like the only person in the country that had a list of people to like put into the Trump government. Okay. So they went to Heritage. They did the whole RNC thing. The RNC, for those who are uninitiated, like they didn't believe that Trump was going to win. Right. So they were of the view that Trump was going to lose. So Trump had to go to like Rebecca Mercer. He had to go. He would try to go to the Cokes. The Cokes said no. And so he went to Rebecca Mercer. She gave some money to him. This is like summertime. She did like a pack. The other person who gave money was, of course, Peter Thiel. I told Peter to do that. Peter was asking me about the whole situation with um, Trump and the whole grabbing by the pussy thing. You know, Peter being a homosexual, me being a heterosexual. Uh, he was like, hey, what's going on with this? You know, you know, is Trump done? Is he finished? And I was like, no, man, he's not finished. He may be in trouble because he may have issues with uh, because he failed to seduce the woman. Right. But it's not a big deal. It's like this isn't going to be the thing that gets him. So Peter was like, you know, people were, Peter was getting advice to ditch Trump. He doubled down on Trump. You know, you all know the history here. OK, so there's this coalition that forms, by the way, summertime 2016, Steve Bannon does not know Donald Trump. OK, summertime 2016, Steve Bannon is asking me to introduce him to Donald Trump, who I knew socially because of my work at The Daily Caller. Tucker, you know, whenever Trump would link to one of my articles, I would get a shitload of money because I was getting paid at the time of The Daily Caller, like a penny a click kind of deal because the advertising money was was rich in those days. Um, so, you know, of course, if you're paid purely on the traffic, as I was, you know, you try to cozy up to drudge to famous people on Twitter. You know, you try to make money that way. Right. Because if they link to you then like you're good to go, right? You don't really need to work all that much. And what I was doing was I was taking my money from that. And I was of course taking between 10 and 20% of the money I was making. This is like circa 2012, 2013 period. And of course I'm buying this newfangled thing that all the nerds are telling me to buy, which is called Bitcoin. And of course, you know, you know how that turned out. So, um, and by the way, I highly recommend not paying for a Honda Fit, you know, entirely with Bitcoin in 2012. You know, that was not a good idea. Every time I see that car, I think about how it's like an $8 million Honda Fit, but whatever. Um, I still had a lot and it ended up working out. So anyway, what can I say about this? So Tucker, all these people kind of wrote off Trump, okay? Trump wins. They're like, oh, fuck. We have this problem. Trump won. This wasn't supposed to happen, right? Who's to blame? Richard, you know, who's in this space, Richard was to blame, right? Because there's a Nazi under every bed, right? If we're talking about Nazis, Richard if we're talking Spencer. about Russians, we're not talking about Bibi Netanyahu, okay? We're not talking about Jared Kushner, where, you know, basically we need an explanatory thing. Why is Cambridge Analytica, right? It's Facebook. It's anything but the fact that there were a whole shitload of Israeli spies doing things like Psy Group. I mean, when I paid to fly the women to the second debate, the big woman I was backing was Kathy Shelton. And Kathy Shelton was uh, the, the she, when she was a little girl. She was raped and Hillary Clinton defended her rapist and then laughed about it. And so I paid to get her new teeth. I got her new dress, gave her some money, whatever, and brought her to the second debate. I then suggested to Sean Hannity, who in turn talked to Steve Bannon, who, by the way, didn't want to do the, the bring the women to the second debate. Um, there were actually lots of people who didn't want to bring them to the second debate. And, you know, in particular, Kellyanne Conway didn't want to do it. Uh, and uh, Ivanka Trump didn't want to do it. Their whole reasoning was we want to make it about his crime, her crimes, not his crimes. Right? We want to make it about her. It's like, you know, this is a crime family. The Clintons are like, you guys are full of shit. And I said, like, hey, I'm going to bring them anyway. So if you don't like that tough, like I'm going to bring the women. And of course, Hannity ultimately was helpful. Hannity secured some planes. I later learned that those planes came from who? From Sheldon Adelson, who, of course, is Mr. Likud himself. And so that was sort of the backdrop on some of that stuff. Anyway, so time goes by. Trump gets elected. Everybody's freaking out, right? They're like, how do we solve this problem? Who do we install? And by the way, along the way, Roger Ailes gets kicked out of Fox, right, for running his mouth, you know, basically. He wasn't fucking anyone other than his wife. I can assure you, I knew him. He was like, they, they tend to be these hemophiliac types where they run their mouths. I don't know if anyone knows any hemophiliacs here, but a lot of hemophiliacs 
they tend to like very much worried about like getting hurt or bleeding to death. So they tend to be very obsessed with TV. They tend to be like not, and they tend to pair bond. They tend to have like one person in their life. If you've ever like had any hemophiliacs. Anyway, so that was what Roger Ailes was. He's kicked out of the, the job. He's going to sue. He's going to be a big, there's going to be a big fight. And then he falls down and dies like basically during the summer of 2016. And I was his like token millennial. He used to call me up. We used to chat. Um, I had worked at, at News Corp in 2011 and, uh, you know, I had a fellowship at Wall Street Journal editorial page and I actually won two fellowships. And so they were like, hey, you can go work at Fox. You can go work at Wall Street Journal. You can go work in New York Post. And I was like, well, let me let me do one each day. Right. Like I'm, I'm trying to study the media. Right. So I'm like, all right, I'll do one day at New York Post, one day at Fox, one day at Wall Street Journal. And then I'm at Fox and, you know, Greg Gutfeld comes in uh, to Michael Clemente's office. And for those who don't know, I'm like pretty bad insomniac. I guess that's kind of obvious because I do run I do run these spaces at like two or three in the morning. And so, you know, of course, I watched Red Eye in college because, like, you know, you go shoot some pool at the pool hall and watch Red Eye at night and, uh, you know, and basically make money hustling people playing pool. And that was basically a big part of my college experience. And so anyway, uh, I was like, oh, I want to meet Greg Gutfeld because I, I didn't watch the rest of Fox. I didn't give a fuck, right? It was like whatever. So Greg Gutfeld comes into the space, you know, into this, uh, Michael Clemente's office. And Michael Clemente is, like, talking to me, you know, about Fox, how great Fox is. They want to offer, ultimately offer me a job to work at foxnews.com. And... Greg Gutfeld, who, by the way, is married to a Russian woman, I think there's some kind of like weird Russian angle there. And Greg Gutfeld is like, you know, the best thing about Fox News is it's like they got rid of all the jocks from high school. And there's just attractive women and class clowns and nerds everywhere. And I remember thinking to myself, like, this is not consistent with my 22 year old, 23 year old values. These people creep me out. They're a bunch of New Yorkers. I just assumed that New York was just a degenerate place. So I was like, and I also need to make real money and I want to go back to California and eat burritos and, you know, do all the things that are the law in California. Like, you know, ride my bicycle to public library, you know, all that good stuff. So, and, and be warm, right? So like, if you're going to have the taxes, you should have the weather. It's kind of my view generally. Um, anyway, I leave New York. Michael Clemente is fired. There's the whole like Megyn Kelly contretemps and all that stuff. Uh, Tucker Carlson's brought in. Um, I had recommended Tucker Carlson get the job when Roger Ailes was alive. Because I joked with him that, you know, Tucker was the only wasp, you know, that they had and that was only allowed on television. And I said, it's time for some real diversity. You know, no more Jews and Catholics. It's time for a wasp on, you know, on TV. Ailes found that really funny. And I was like, it's time. You know, like, our people, you know, the wasps, they need to come back onto TV. It's, we're ready. Like, America's ready for a wasp on television again. And Ailes was like, ha, 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 that's so funny, whatever. So Tucker had written this piece, as I mentioned, in Politico. Politico, of course, is a very Israeli publication. It's even more so now that it's done by Axel Springer. Axel Springer, of course, being the German publication that has all these East German connections and is super obsessively pro-Israel. And anyway, time goes by. Tucker's waiting around. They bring Tucker in. Tucker gets in there. Now, we should also mention that, like, Rupert Murdoch was a backer of the Weekly Standard back when Tucker Carlson was there. Um, you know, there's sort of all these long-running connections between the sort of neocon right, which Tucker pretended to be in exile, and the whole Trump game. Right. Because like everybody's like, what the fuck do we do? What is Trumpism? Is it even a thing? Is this guy just crazy? And my attitude basically at the time was this dude is for single payer health care. He's talking shit about immigration being crazy. He's basically on any given night of Celebrity Apprentice. He's doing better than any of the other cable shows. So everybody knows him. And in fact, one of the dumbest emails I ever wrote was after I was there when Trump won at the Hilton on election night. And by the way, hilariously, you know, Ken Langone, I saw Ken Langone in the morning and Ken Langone of Home Depot fame, who's a big backer of various like, you know, neocon kind of things. And Ken Langone was like, there's no way Trump's going to win. He's telling me that at like 9 a.m. because I'm wearing my MAGA hat, of course. Like, we're in, you know, it's election day. You got to wear your, got to fly the colors, man. So I'm wearing my Ferragamo tie, my, you know, tailored suits and my, and my Make America Great Again hat, which of course was made in China because of course it was. And walking around, doing my thing, see Ken Langone. Oh, Mr. Langone, good to see you. Big fan. My dad loves Home Depot, shops there all the time. Oh, you know, whatever, kid. And I was like, you know, he's like, who's going to win today? I was like, oh, Mr. Donald Trump is going to win, sir. And he looks at me and he's like, no, he's not. He's like, yes, he is, sir. And he says, no, he's not. And like, you're basically you're full of shit, kid. Like, okay, whatever. I don't think anything of it. I go back, go get into the VIP section um, through my friends, the Katsimatidis. You know, if you know Grisidis, they let me in there. 
And of course, Trump wins. And who should show up but Ken Langone, right, from earlier in the day, <laughs> basically <laughs> pretending he was always for Trump. And uh, it was a very interesting day. So anyway, everything changed that day because it was one of those situations that wasn't supposed to happen. And I wrote an email to my brothers, you know, pointing out all this stuff about Trump. How Trump ran as an independent. How Trump has no real political views, right, as far as we can tell. Uh, that, but he's basically always a protectionist. That protectionism is kind of generally good for Americans because it boosts wages. That we need tight labor markets. You know, that he's in favor in theory of American manufacturing. All the stuff that Joe Biden is actually doing right now. Okay, like I was of the view that Donald Trump was going to do it. And what I did not understand at the time was how crucial the presence of Jared Kushner was. He wasn't actually involved in the election in any meaningful way. And in fact, he kind of cozied up to a lot of us after the election. To basic, and we basically were like, well, let's use this guy, right? He's dumb. You know, Dershowitz told me he was the dumbest Jew he knew, okay? Which is kind of amazing. <laughs> and Dershowitz, you know, basically was talking shit about Jared. All these people I knew were talking shit about Jared. Okay, let's play here. Tucker talking about a text he got from happens. Chuck Johnson. Meanwhile, Ben Sass and this may... Well, as we were doing that story, we were warned repeatedly by people around Washington, don't criticize Paul Singer. That's not a good idea. And as that package played, I got the following text from a very well-known person in Washington. Chuck Holy Johnson. smokes, I can't believe you're doing this. I'm afraid of Paul Singer. We'll see what happens. Meanwhile, Ben Sass... Well, uh, Tucker paid a price. Then Trump wins and Jared's a genius. Jared did it all, right? I was like, well... Okay, Elliot Blatt, what's going on, bro? It's captivating content, man. Yeah, it's uh, quite quite interesting. Uh, Chuck Johnson's incredibly connected guy. He's been anywhere. He's met everybody. He's done everything, bro. He's not like one of us, man. He's not like this lowly schmuck. I just got back from a self-serve car wash. That's what I've been doing, bro. Blessings. Far more mundane. Far man. more mundane. But I man, just, that's fascinating. I just do what needs to do it. Sure glad I stopped playing... Uh, Chuck Johnson so I could hear about your salsa car wash. Oh, sorry, man. Uh, it was just a quick call. Um, uh, what's your verdict, man? I mean, Chuck Johnson does. He does know the people he claims, right? That's that's not made up. I may disagree with this interpretation or that interpretation or that claim by Chuck Johnson, but when but, he says he knows people, uh, that's real. Yeah, but this. Israel this, Russia that, all yeah, of this. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't, I don't, uh, I, I'm highly skeptical of, of those claims, how, yeah. How does one support something like that, and how does one come to that conclusion? I don't I mean, know. It's, I, I, it's just, my, my mind goes blank when I hear that. I, I want to believe it, because it's sort of exciting and so forth, but it just seems really stupid to me. I just, yeah. I, I need my, I, I'm hoping you can get me past this because I do like this content. I, I like getting drawn into this. I find it, I feel like I'm getting the backstory. You know, certain things yeah. do fall into place hearing stuff like this, but then other stuff boggle my mind. So I don't know. Yep. I, I'm, I'm with you, except you know, I am highly skeptical of his interpretation of events, blaming, you know, almost everything on the Likud party in Israel. And on you know yeah. Russian and and Chinese uh, foreign influence, but uh, okay. All right, him... I'm gonna draw, man. I'll, I'll okay. Talk, continue. I didn't mean to. I just needed no. to get some uh, reality check, man. I'll okay, talk later. All right, bye. Okay, man. Take care. Well, fuck. He can't fire his son-in-law, right? My dumb self. So I started smuggling in various people into the federal government through Jared's operation, and I think and through Peter's operation, Teal's operation, and I think to myself, well, Jared is. And again, Chuck Johnson isn't making this up. He did bring people into the White House. Chuck Johnson was screening people to go to work for Donald Trump. So dumb. He's only going to care about the Israel stuff. 
So he's not going to catch all the people I put in at the Department of Commerce. He's like, he basically just cares about Israel all the time, right? He really is an Israel firster. So I'm thinking to myself, like, this is great. <laughs> you know, like, I have operational control of all these parts of the government. Of course, it didn't quite work out that way. And uh, there were all these problems that, that sort of, you know, should have been obvious in retrospect, like the relationship that he was building with Ben Shapiro, like the relationship he was building with Mark Zuckerberg. And basically, you know, you wanted President Trump, you got President Kushner. And then I started getting my phone hacked. I started having all this other crazy Israeli shit happen to me, people following me at my hotel room. People calling me up from Tel Aviv just wanting to chat. You know, people I knew and that my family knew. Because for those who don't know, my, my grandfather, my mother, a number of members of my family lived in Israel for a time. My grandfather, my late grandfather, who died in 2020, uh, worked for CIA. He worked for a company called E-Systems, which was a CIA front that um, was later acquired by Raytheon. And it was its job was basically to monitor the ceasefire between the Israelis and the Egyptians. And my grandfather was um, fluent in Russian, you know, a very interesting man, ran Fort Indian Town Gap, always extremely skeptical of uh, the far right, you know, just like always onto them, always talking shit about them privately. He was a friend of the Kennedy family, sort of how I knew them. Actually, Ted Kennedy wrote my letter of, uh, to get into Annapolis, interestingly enough, Ted Kennedy and Barney Frank. <laughs> um, so uh, so anyway, thanks to my grandfather and all his, his involvement. Uh, of course, I got into Annapolis, kicked out of Annapolis because of medical shit, because I'm, you know, can't sleep through the night and basically have shit eyes and I'm going blind, which is a whole topic for another time. Um, but anyway, what can I say about this? Yeah, so basically my Grandfather was always on to Tucker Carlson. He always thought Tucker Carlson was a stinker. Always told me Tucker Carlson was a stinker. When Tucker Carlson endorsed my book on Calvin Coolidge um, and actually you know, blurbed it on the back, my grandfather was like, you're an idiot. Like you shouldn't have had him endorse your book. <laughs> that guy's gonna get in trouble. And, uh, and I should have listened, you know? Like there's a lesson in that of like listening to your elders on various topics. He also told me Ted Cruz also blurred my book. And he told me Ted Cruz was never gonna be president. And he told me that in 2012 or so, 2013 or so after Ted Cruz won the Senate race in Texas. And by the way, I think it's gonna be Ted Cruz you know, there's the Ted Cruz tapes that exist between Ted Cruz and uh, and Tucker Carlson. And, of course, Jack Smith, reportedly, the special counsel, wants those tapes. And for those who don't know, Ted Cruz has all these weird connections with the Chinese, with the Ukrainian mob. Uh, you know, there's all that stuff about him basically fucking anything that moved when he lived in D.C. And, of course, there's the stuff about his, you know, his wife, uh, you know, being a nutter and his daughter being a nutter. Um, you know, which, by the way, like, I've got nothing against people's family members being fucked up. But that's basically, you know, why he's not running for president again. And uh, And I don't think he could actually survive the vetting the second time through, to be honest with you. I think we'll see Ted Cruz quietly retire from the Senate in the next few years. It's kind of my bet. Um, particularly, you know, he's friends with Harlan Crow. He's in those photos with Clarence Thomas and uh, Judge Ho, you know, in, the, in Harlan Crow's, you know, palatial property. Uh, anyway, so, yeah, so that's basically that's sort of setting the stage. I don't know if there are any questions. You know, we can kind of go through this a little bit. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that that's the basic kind of backdrop there. I think I'm trying to think if there's anything else I need to say about this. Um, I have a quick question. Yeah. Okay, that was uh, Chuck Johnson. My name's Luke Ford. Bye-bye.